Hello, welcome back to Metastation for the first part of our recap of episode 411, which is called The Other Side. Um, I'm Erin. I'm an English professor in Mississippi. And for the first part of our podcast, or for this part of our podcast, um, Claire is running late doing like stuff with her life that doesn't have to do with a TV show for some stupid reason. Um, it's like she actually cares about other things. It's not just me talking to myself. We have a special guest host this week with us, my wonderful friend, Shosh. Hi, Shosh. Hi. Tell us about yourself, Shosh. Uh, God, that's already <laughs> terrible. <laughs> I'm Shosh. I'm a medical professional that makes it sound like I have some sort of control over human life which I thankfully do not I work at a hospital in Massachusetts yay yay um if you if you are uh in the blark fandom um (laughs) we're gonna fight over this (laughs) I know I'm trying to pick a fight with you I know (laughs) I'm coming for you (laughs) um then you are probably you're surely aware of shosh if not a reader of shosh's prolific fan fiction we i asked shosh to join us not just because of Bullark, although we will definitely talk about about Bullark, but also because she's just a generally brilliant and awesome person who i talk about with the show all the time and so we wanted to have her on and so we thought this week would be a big week for Bullark, so we're like hey shosh come on and then we were only sort of wrong. Yeah. <laughs> that turned out interestingly. <laughs> I know. It was like, we're all like, hey. Hey, what a great week. We're going to have like a breakout thing about Valeric. It'll be amazing. And then maybe this will be a breakout thing. I don't know. Yeah. So. <laughs> it's a thing where Claire isn't here. So that makes it special. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It is a special occasion. So, yeah. So we're going to start with Valeric because that is the thing that we love the most, Shash and I. Well, and to be fair, the preview for this episode and the end of last episode as well really did make it seem like it was going to be a major part of this episode. Yeah, it really did. Yeah. And even the promo stuff, which, as you know, I never watch because you always link it when I'm at work and I'm too lazy to watch it on my phone. (laughs) (laughs) A lot of that was also first five minutes. It was. Well, I mean, like some, you know, it's funny because like some weeks the preview clips are a little more scattered throughout. And this one, they were like literally the first, I think, three scenes. This is the kind of stuff you know if you watch them. Right. <laughs> but yeah, it did really seem the kind of like built up. Well, and then Jason Rothenberg in the sort of teaser thing too said, you know, it's it's Bellamy versus Clark in a way we haven't seen before. And in a way it was and in a way it wasn't. Yeah. I mean, those opening scenes were great. They were awesome. And we have never seen one of them point a gun at the other one. So That is true. That was That was novel. Wait. Did we ever see that? No, not in season one either. I don't. No, I don't think so. No, no I mean, like no. he did. He did technically think about dropping her into the pit. Yeah. When they went back for Jasper, which is actually a kind of like God. The last time Bellamy and Clark thought one of them thought about killing the other one was the last time that Jasper was like dying. So it's thematic. Yeah, we we really came full circle. <laughs> <laughs> oh God, why? <laughs> Yeah, so, well, anyway, so we figured we probably should just go chronologically, because those opening scenes for both Bellamy and Clark, and, the, like, the opening scene with them together was fantastic. Like, it I mean, was. I, really, I thought, like, I have to say, before we get into anything else, you know, like, whatever other gripes I might have about Clark's writing, I just have to say that Eliza... Eliza was amazing. Amazing. I mean, like, like the, the, acti- the stuff she was doing with her, you know, just, like, the story that she was telling about what was going on with Clark with her face in the first half of this episode was just like uh, incredible. Yeah. 
Yeah, she knocked it out of the park. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, like, you could just see every single bit of, like, emotion and subtext and everything else, like, running through. Which is also pretty rare for Clark, actually. Like, it's interesting. She's usually not the one who's got everything written on her face. So it was really, you know, cool and pretty novel, I feel like, to see her broken open like she was in this episode. That's very true. And I think also a very good index of how truly upset you know, and broken up she was yeah. over the choice that she made. Because like you said, like Clark normally has that kind of like steely reserve, mm-hmm. especially in situations like that where, you know, she really thinks that she's right. Yeah, like she'll double down on it. Yeah, exactly. So the fact that she couldn't quite do that, I think is like, you're right. That's like a really, that's like a kind of like a really good indicator for. I'm super smart. <laughs> you are super smart. Aww. <laughs> <laughs> that's the insight you bring me on for. <laughs> exactly. But yeah, so I mean, I thought, especially in that opening scene, this also was a really fantastic Bellamy episode. This was an unbelievable Bellamy episode. Just like the sass that he brought to Jaha. He was so angry at Jaha this episode. I loved it. He was just like, I don't want to hear any of this. You know what? We're done. I'm done putting up with you. This is wrong. (laughs) I love that Bellamy was finally the one to point out like, oh, hey, you know what we haven't actually had? since Pike. Oh, right. An election. (laughs) But I mean, not to get ahead of myself, but in a way, that's also sort of the start of annoyances I had with this episode where part of the cliffhanger, you know, this cliffhanger twist ending of last episode was Jaha being like, you know, it was Clark's idea to do this. And basically immediately in this episode, we switch to Jaha as the big bad and Clark being kind of quiet and reactive. That's very true. I mean, I think that's kind of I'm sure we'll come back to this, but oh, yeah. that's kind of kind of one of my one of my frustrations with Clark's arc overall in the season is that I feel like they just keep pulling their punches with her yeah. in ways that you know that I that I just wish that they would just kind of like I mean like if if Clark was supposed to be if this was supposed to be like the moral event horizon for Clark you know this decision yeah. and she's and she's sticking with it. I mean, like, to yeah, to kind of have it sort of switch gears a little bit and have have Jaha really be the sole person fighting for it and Clark looking sort of, like, uncomfortable. Like, I mean, I, you know, I, it's, it's tough because, like, on the one hand, yes, it totally makes sense that Clark looks, is conflicted, right? Yeah, like, Jaha is actually all in on this and Clark is like, wait a second, no. Right. Which I think makes sense, but like you said, they're sort of pulling back from... Yeah, I mean, I think... That comes back around to something we'll talk about later, which is that I, I feel like it sort of dis- did a disservice for Clark not to have that argument with somebody. Yeah. You know, not to not to be forced to defend herself. Well, and you know, if we're if we're speaking from the Bellark, Bellark perspective. <laughs> <laughs> Bellark, you mean? Yeah, no, never. I will die first. <laughs> if we're coming it from it from that perspective, it is also like it sort of makes sense for Bellamy to be mad at Jaha, but it's also sort of frustrating that by putting, by making this argument about Jaha, we're sort of taking away from with Clark's responsibility. And, you know, he's, he lets her off the hook basically with the, you know, I know you, th- you were doing what you think you had to do, like you always do, but you're wrong. And then I feel like it moves pretty quickly to let's talk about Jaha, who, which makes sense. Cause Jaha is the one who's being like, twirling his goatee about it but right 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 yeah you know in terms of like Bellamy Jaha is not is 
I'm all here all the time for Bellamy sassing Jaha, but that's not really a confrontation I care about. Like, it's not a relationship we're invested in. It's not something where there are no emotional stakes in Bellamy disagreeing with Jaha. Yeah, I mean, I think that's a good way of putting it. Which... Which was still fine the first time I watched it and I expected that the Bellamy and Clark actual like real argument about that like you know talking about it was coming so it's, it's just sort of in retrospect. Yeah this is something that like again you're right this is a scene that basically totally works as we're watching it but knowing how the episode resolves it's sort of like we needed more somewhere here's a place there could have been more. Right exactly exactly and I did like I mean I, you know just just it's kind of funny how, like, I feel like you could almost say that about just about everything in this episode. That yeah, every scene, I would say, with the exception of one, <laughs> which we'll get to, every scene, with the exception of one, I thought, on its own, at least. In the worked. Arcadia plot, just to clarify, I think. Or not Arcadia, the bunker plot. The bunker plot. I know plot. where yes, we are. Yes, 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 yes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> in, this, in the bunker, like, every scene on its own, except for one, I think really, really worked very well as a scene. And it's only sort of in the context of the full arc, or like in the case of Clark, kind of like, and and, and Bilark especially, the sort of like non-lack of resolution arc, or lack of actual arc. It was basically the less than the sum of its parts. Right, exactly, exactly. So like that first scene, I thought, you know, and I loved, I mean, I really, really loved... The way that, and this, you know, all all kudos here go to uh, Henry Ian Cusick, um, yeah. who is directing. Yes, yay, good job. Um, <laughs> I'm just going to say yay a lot. <laughs> <laughs> That's cool. You know, I, I, I thought I really, really loved the way, you know, when, when Bellamy was talking to Octavia, the way that the the camera lingered on Clark's face. And we really, we got to see her, you know, we got to sort of like be with her as she realized that she was wrong, she you know, was that wrong. she had miscalculated. And especially yeah. got to see her kind of get that gut punch of the irony yeah. that Octavia achieved the thing that she had given up on. Yeah, again, Eliza Taylor just did fantastic work throughout this episode, but those first scenes, she was amazing. Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, just incredible. And that final scene with Bellamy staring up at her. Yes, yes. God. And yeah, and like sort of realizing, I mean, I think the, the, the really powerful thing about Eliza's face acting, if that's a thing. Um, <laughs> uh, Emoting? Em- oh, there you go. Emoting. <laughs> <laughs> I prefer face acting. I like face acting too. <laughs> Although it's funny because like that's actually, a, I, think that's a, I think that's a phrase that my husband likes to use. Like he uses that as a derogatory term. Like he, he says face acting to refer to like really bad overacting, but that's not oh, what yeah. I mean. Yeah, no, this is the good face acting. This is the good face acting. <laughs> you know, like good earth cleavage, only it's good <laughs> face acting. I, you know, like, I think we, like, she did such a good job of sort of charting, like, from the beginning of that scene. I, we did kind of see her double down, I guess, at the beginning, you know, when Bellamy yeah. was, like, yelling at her. She had that moment of... And I think it stops, basically, when they get on the radio. Yeah, exactly. Well, it stops when she hears that... Octavia uh, one. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Well, I guess actually it's a little bit before. I, well, no, 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 because it looks like I'm letting them say goodbye is sort of just like Clark being like. I also love that moment because it's like Jaha lied and Clark did not back him up. <laughs> yeah, Jaha's like, you can't do that. Clark's like, yeah, you can. Fuck you. <laughs> radios don't work down here. And and then he's like, he's so mad when Clark doesn't back his play. He's like, what the fuck, man? I thought we were. I thought we were bros. <laughs> I thought Which, we were bros. <laughs> really, you shouldn't have because you're of the people in that room. It was like. 
at that point it was Jahab, Bellamy, Clark, and Abby. And like on the list of Clark's bros, he is dead last. Oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> you gotta know that, Jahab. <laughs> Just because you <laughs> yeah. commit one genocide together. Do you know how many genocides Bellamy and Clark have committed together? <laughs> the couple that genocides together stays together. <laughs> That's the true lesson of the hundred. It uh, seems to be, honestly. It does. I mean, like between Bullark and and then Cabby. Yeah, yeah. Like yep. seems to seems to actually be fairly consistent. But yeah, no, that like I, and that so that we got that little bit of sort of like her trying to double down. And I, I did also love um, Bellamy sassing back at Clark, but she's like, "Do you understand that?" And he's yes, like, God, that was yeah. so, like I mean, she deserved it. Like, come on, Clark. Oh, yeah. Of course, Bellamy gets this. Yeah, but I mean, I think that's also an indication of how far gone Clark is. You know that she's yeah, like, that- yelling at Bellamy like that. That she's feeling so defensive. Yeah, she's just, like, trying to reason this through with Bellamy, even knowing, like, like she knows. Yeah. You see, you look at her face at the end of the last episode, and she knows he's never gonna go with this. Yeah, yeah, no, definitely. <laughs> but she's gotta try. Given, given, you know, what we see of her later, I think also, you know, it's definitely a kind of, like, her rationalizing to herself, you know? Like, yeah. she needs to believe that this was the only choice she had. Yeah. In order to kind of like be able to live with that. And, I, you know, and that's why like when she went over the radio, she sort of hears that she had she was wrong and she had yeah. calculated, you know, like, I think that's where it really hits her. How sick she looks, you know, when she realizes. That, yeah, I think. Yeah. And I did really love like, I mean, first of all, Bella being the most extra motherfucker on the God. planet. Being like, you send six gods, I'll fight them off. Like, oh, buddy. <laughs> We shouldn't do we shouldn't do Miller now, right? We can do Miller later. I, I'm gonna we can rant do Miller about now. Miller. I mean, we, we I don't know if Claire... about Miller. God, I'm so pissed about Miller. Oh my god. <laughs> yeah, what the fuck, Miller? Like what? Uh... I mean, the worst part is that, like, yeah, like I can't even blame Miller because he had literally no characterization this episode. Like, yeah, no. he just sort of showed up. We don't know. We don't know what anyone believes. Abby just like shows up at the beginning of this scene like 15 minutes late with Starbucks being like, hey guys, what's going on? I heard some noises. Clearly nothing bad has happened. So, She's like, like, so we won, guys. She like bounds in all cheerful. <laughs> yeah. Jaha clearly goes out and calls in the guard and Miller's among them presumably because they need to pay Jared Joseph to do something. Right. Which legit, right. I'm all for him getting paid. Um, yeah. But like, we have, what does he think he's doing? Why did we think? What does he know? Like, what did they tell people? We don't get any sense of even what Miller knows. You no, know, like, exactly. What he's been like, told about what's happening. He has to know. He has to know that they haven't won and that they're just taking it. I mean, we don't even know if he knows about the conclave, do we? I guess not, technically. I think I, I sort of assumed he did because, like, there was that weird part at the end of 409 when he and Jackson come back and it was either they were hooking up or they were just like there's a hilarious death match coming or both (laughs) but like I like to think both yeah yeah, I mean death match we should bang in the woods (laughs) we've all been there oh of course (laughs) anyway even later Jaha's you know in the next scene Jaha's to Clark like well Bellamy's got a lot of friends in the guard garden we can't trust them but you know, Miller is presumably one of those. We don't have any reason to, like, he seems to be trustworthy, but, like, what is Miller's inner life this episode, this season, honestly? I can't, Miller doesn't yeah. have anything going on, and I love him, so I'm salty, but, um. Yeah, I mean, you know, he. This I, episode I, especially. <laughs> I think, I think he had, he had some stuff with Brian, like, the breakup with Brian, that's, that storyline was, I think, pretty good. I mean, 
I will note that I was not convinced that was a breakup, and the only way that we figured out was that Brian has never appeared again. Well, that's so, true. <laughs> well, that was a good episode. I'm not going to say that was a good breakup arc. <laughs> it was a good breakup episode. It was a good breakup scene. Yeah. But yeah, I guess it was sort of a little too abrupt to really count as like a full... Yeah, it was storyline. Again, it was yeah. not clear to me until like it was five episodes later and Brian had never been mentioned again that this was the end of them. I still I still buy the theory that Riley is like the the crypto Brian. I think that was my theory, so I'm gonna take credit it for it. So. I think it was, yeah. I know I, I I also still buy that theory. Yes. <laughs> but um yeah, so I mean it's frustrating that Miller has kind of gotten so so little to do but i think it was like especially noticeable in this episode just because like all he does is restrain bellamy it's unclear why they're friends well and like given and like given everything that we do know about miller like first of all why the fuck would miller be like cool with jaha jaha sent him to the ground yeah miller's never seemed like a jaha fan no, like, why would he, why would Miller side with Jaha over Bellamy? You know, over anybody else? Over Bellamy, yeah. Over Bellamy and Kane. He, he sided with Kane last season during the, uh, and against Bellamy he fucking, last, he last season. risked, yeah, he fucking risked his life all of last season, like, sneaking around and spying for Kane. Saving Lincoln. Or just, Saving like, Lincoln. being a bro to Lincoln. Yeah, because he thought it was the right thing to do, he believed it was the right thing to do, and he doesn't like... You know, like weirdo, you know, my way or the highway, I kill my enemies, despots. Yeah. So it's unclear why he would have gone, why he's just like, not that he's just going along with it, but that he seems to be totally unquestioning. He's like, Yeah, I mean, he's he's trying to tell Bellamy to give up. Like, you, right? you have yeah. a brief moment of him being like, Bellamy, don't do this. And it's like, well, why the fuck not, Miller? You know what? You want to tell me not to do this? Miller, You're you were his dad. second in command. You were his second in command at the dropship. Like, you of all people know Bellamy Blake. Like, you fucking know Bellamy is not going to stop fighting. I'm I'm very salty about, I don't need a full, you know, I don't need like 10 minutes in Miller's head figuring, like explaining everything he's thinking. But if you just throw a character into a scene doing something, you got to make sure that that's what they do. And that scene just rings completely false with Miller. Yeah, yeah. No, I agree. I think, and I think you're right, it was a sort of, they had to account for Miller, you know, they needed to have him there in some capacity, and there was no room in the plot for him to be, for them to have another, like, you know, rebel besides Abby and Bellamy, which is annoying, because they totally could have, but, you know. Or if you're gonna do it, like, don't have him be there, but have him be the one that Murphy's relieving like he was. And then it's sort of like, well, of course you got to relieve Miller. Miller's going to break Bellamy out of there. But having him be one of the ones who takes him down, it's just like, what the fuck? Yeah, no, I, I agree. That was that was kind of like, I don't know who you think Miller is, but that didn't really seem to... It just didn't... Yeah. And again, we don't know... Maybe Miller had some sort of, maybe Miller didn't understand the stakes. Like, who knows what Jaha told him? But the fact that we don't know that is not a reason that it's good. And I can say, you know, this is, again, this is one of those things where, like, I think I can headcanon a version of Miller who would go along with this. And it's the version of Miller who didn't want to save the farm station people, you know, from as good a slavery or... Wait, wasn't he on the other side of that, though? He was the one who didn't want to save them. Yeah, that was what he and Brian fought about. 
Yeah, he did. He did not want to save them. He's the one who doesn't want to save it. Yeah, right. And and so I think that that Miller potentially sort of jives with this Miller because 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 Miller's rational or like rationalization, his reason for not wanting to save the farm station slaves, is because if they use the hydrazine to blow up a farm station then they couldn't use it to survive. And he was like, listen, you know, like, yeah. for these 60 people, but, like, I think saving more people, our people, is important. So, like, again, this is one of those things where, like, I can sort of, I can headcanon that. I can be like, well, Clark must have convinced him that, hey, we got to do what we got to do to survive. And Miller was like, all right, you know, like, I care about these people more than I care about grounders, so sure. Yeah. You know, and I could totally, I could also see Miller being like, Conclave is dumb, you know, like, this seems like the best plan. To be fair, Miller, I'm with you on that. <laughs> Miller's, Miller's a very pragmatic character. So yeah. it's not that I can't come up with, I can't explain to myself yeah. reasons, but it's a little bit like the Luna thing, you know, yeah. where it's like, I can, I can definitely go back and like, find the breadcrumbs, you know, to explain why this character made this choice. But the fact that we never, ever got that explanation, you know, like, it's just, especially with a character like Miller, who's a character that we've known for four seasons. Yeah. It's just like, I, I it's a, like, I can do it, but I'm annoyed that I have to do it. You know, exactly. it just feels like, like a little bit like, yeah. And it's annoying because, you know, much like Luna, I can be 90% sure that my reading of a scene is correct, but it's never anything they're going to address. Like, this is not going to come up again. We're never going to, I mean, okay, I'm not going to say never. Maybe I will be shocked and we will get some sort of, they will make time for a Miller Bellamy bro hug, like, hey, buddy, <laughs> I'm really sorry that I stopped you from going to get your sister. No, bro, it's cool. I understand that you're a Slytherin and you had to uh, <laughs> look out for number one and then, you know, they make out a little. But um, <laughs> Which I would be totally fine with. That would, yeah, that I mean, I'm just, you know, <laughs> while I'm spitballing here. But, you know, that's the kind of scene that the show is almost certainly never going to make room for. And maybe yeah, shouldn't. Like, yeah. I'm not Especially saying that that's vital. Yeah. yeah, again, two episodes less. I'm not saying that this is vital, but that makes it more annoying that there's this sort of, well, why did this happen? It's dumb and nothing is going to come of it. So I would much rather they just skip it because now it feels like this weird kind of... It feels like a, yeah, it feels like something that's going to remain unresolved. and Exactly. Like sort of just, We're never going to know. Like, and so... Yeah. I'm just going to be low-key annoyed about it. If it's, if it's... It's because it's Miller, too. You know, I mean, yeah. if he was just, like, a random... I, I, I'm trying to even think of another example. I don't know. Riley. <laughs> like, <laughs> like we know Riley, but we don't care. Like, it's because yeah, he's always yeah. been around. For, even if it was Miller's season. dad. Yeah. Like, yeah. Actually, Miller's dad would have been way better because we right? know him. But he, we also know that he's a guy who follows orders. You know? Yeah, like, so we had him orders. doing that thing to Ilian, right? He was the one in... Yeah. Yeah. Totally. I'm glad that you knew what that meant because that was not helpful. <laughs> <laughs> I gotcha. Yeah. Yeah, no, I, Miller's dad actually would have made a thousand times more sense. And then again, you can have Miller there at the, you know, when you're having, you have Clark and Murphy come down to relieve the guards. And then it, you know, does tie in, whereas to Jaha's, he's got friends in the guard where... Right. And then it's like, oh, yeah, of course, Miller's the friend in the guard that they're going to be like, he cannot be trusted to not go in there and let Bellamy out. Yeah. Like... He very well, even if he's on their side, like, if he's hearing Bellamy yelling, yeah. you know, he likes Bellamy. They're bros. Right. They're bros. Like, Bellamy could, Bell if Bellamy stopped, like, slamming himself against the door, he could talk Miller into yeah. the door. You know? So, like, that so, would yeah. 
Yeah, I know. I agree. It was just, it was just like, and it was one of those things. It was one of those moments where it was like, it was something that pulled me out a little bit. Yeah, exactly. It's like, wait, wait Miller's there. What's Miller doing? Why? Right. Tell me everything about Miller's internal state right now. Where, where, where's Miller at? <laughs> right. Yeah, it was just like one false note in that otherwise really great yeah. scene. Yeah, and maybe it was supposed to register as like a betrayal for Bellamy, but again, it doesn't go anywhere and it doesn't make sense. So right. if that's what it's supposed to do, it's not doing it. It's like piling on betrayal on Bellamy, just yeah. just to pile on betrayals on poor Bellamy. Just rubbing some dirt in Bellamy's open wounds. Speaking of Bellamy's open wounds, <laughs> segue into next scene. <laughs> Clark's face when she looks at Bellamy, Bellamy falls on the ground. Yeah, like, yeah. Eliza, just like amazing. Yeah. But the degree of like remorse and sadness and... Just, like, I think horror at herself, you know? Like, yeah. she's looking at Bellamy, of all people, on the floor, and just, like, I think, you know, that's, we. it was, like, a great moment, I think, and I'm glad that they lingered on it, you know? Yeah. That we got to see that allowing that to happen to Bellamy has, like, huge emotional consequences for Clark. And I like that as something to echo later, where, you know, when she's pointing that gun at him, and he's... Yeah doing his calculations, he's got that look in his head. He knows what she's what she's feeling about doing this to him. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Like he could see, I think, that there was a there was a wedge there, you know, yeah. that she that she whatever she might protest, you know, she has doubts and reservations and she and she hates herself for doing this to him. Yeah. And also just, you know, like as a Valark shipper <laughs> I feel like you're I'm, saying it more like I do subconsciously. I think I'm influencing I, you. I totally am. Like I so I'm one of those people, and this is this is just like I've always been like this. I'm I'm one of those people where I very very quickly pick up other people's speech patterns. Like from okay, so say bagel start, like five times. Well, you have to say it five times first. <laughs> okay, bagel, 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 bagel. Okay, bagel, 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 bagel. Yeah, no, that's that totally worked. Yeah, I just I just echoed you. Aw. Aw. Side note, every time they talk about Echo on the show, it is incredibly confusing for me because my cat's name is Echo, and every time they talk about her, I think they are talking about my cat, which is a <laughs> trivia fact for all the listeners at home. I will do it every time anyone says the word Echo on this podcast, too. <laughs> I do like to think about, I like to imagine that the part of Echo is being played by your cat. It's also good when I tell stories about my cats to, you know, our group chat, because I'm the only one who thinks of Echo as my cat primarily. So it's like Echo came yes. over and started headbutting my boob and they're picturing something very different than what happened. Yes. Although that would be the good start to another, uh, another scene. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so Echo just comes over and starts like headbutting Octavia's boob. Yeah. <laughs> anyway. anyway. But, I mean, yeah, I, there's, I think there's like a lot of, there was, a, there was a kind of thread running through of, you know, how much Clark cares about Bellamy and how much, I think like, how much the kind of like moral and emotional stakes of what she has done really kind of hit home for her through Bellamy. Yeah. And also, also through her mom, obviously, you know, yeah, like yeah. having, having Abby come in and having Clark have to watch you know, after just watching Bellamy realize that he's condemned Octavia, she's condemned Octavia to death, having to watch her mom realize that she's condemned Kane to death. But I think, like, more consistently because of the, you know, the gun scene at the end, like, Bellamy is really sort of the character, he's, like, the kind of anchor for Clark's emotional, yeah. sort of emotional stakes for her. Well, like, you know, these are the decisions that she has in the past always either made with Bellamy or have been 
emotionally cleared with Bellamy. Yeah, yeah, like, that's true. Abby's never played that role for her. But, yeah. you know, Bellamy's the one who, after she, you know, locks him out in season one, he's the one who tells her that she did what she had, you know, she did what yes. she had to do. He's the one who agrees with her at Mount Weather and helps her do it. And he's the one who, at the end of season three, apparently they have a conversation about what she did. And he's like, yeah, you cool. <laughs> yeah, right. Exactly. And and also, I mean, you know, to go way back, back even into season one, you know, after they tortured Lincoln, he's the one who who offered her reassurance that this didn't make her you know, the, the, who we are and what we have, who, who we have to be to survive are different people. You know, he kind of gave her that. They're basically like each other's morality buddy. They're like, okay, yeah. have you crossed the, have you gone too far? Exactly. Like he's the one who said to her, like, sometimes you have to do shit that makes, that's terrible. It makes you feel terrible. Yep. You know, and but, she's but the then... one who, you know, to get back to mutuality there, she's the one who is like, you know, in day trip, you know, basically, you're a good dude, which is exactly what she said verbatim. <laughs> I'm not at all mangling that scene. <laughs> we should go back and dub over like important. Yeah, yeah, I, I could really, I could really improve all of that. You're a good dude. If like you need me to, st- if you need me to say you're a good dude, I'll say you're a good dude. You're a good dude. <laughs> <laughs> Honestly, all shows would be improved if they said dude more. Like, everyone. Even the ones that already say dude way too much. Well, those shows would just be strings of dudes with different inflections. Honestly, all I can think of for ones that say dude too much is, wasn't that the Good Burger sketch on all that? Was They said dude a lot on that. Are you too old for that? I'm I'm probably too old for that. Also, I never had cable growing up, so I'm too old and too cableless for that. But I'm sure somebody out there understood that. <laughs> and I'm probably misremembering it. So someone's like, God, Josh doesn't know anything about Good Burger. <laughs> we'll get many, many messages being like, actually. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, so I think like, I think that's, that's a good point because that's the other. Well, and then in, like in Hakodama last season in 305, when, when Clark and Bellamy had that blistering argument, which is what mm-hmm. I was really hoping for this episode, Same, same, yeah. You know, the thing that she said to him at the beginning of that, you know, before it kind of really descended into, into an argument, is she said, I need the guy who wouldn't let me pull the lever alone yep. in Mount Weather. And like, I, you know, obviously he, he refused to help her there, but it was a little bit different. I think in this, this is, this is also, you can kind of see that this is like, the moral event horizon for Clark, because this is really the first time that, that, you know, she gave Bellamy her rationale. You know, she said like, we have to do this for the human race. And he was like, yeah, I get it. Still bullshit. You know? Yeah. Like the thing about the the Hakeldama fight is that it was less that Bellamy was like, I morally disagree with you. And was more like, man, you really hurt my feelings. Right. That's true. And I'm still, I'm still upset about that time. You left me alone after we, killed a bunch of people together and I was emotionally traumatized. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a really good point. He didn't actually, it wasn't actually about him, you know. Yeah, like that fight not was Not supporting less, her. Yeah. Yeah, it was, it was about, you know, I'm, <laughs> he's like, you broke my heart and I'm not cool with it. But in a super platonic way. Obviously, yes. <laughs> I mean, hey, friends can break Yeah, no, no, Absolutely. that was like the worst friend breakup ever. Ever. But yeah, so no, that's a good point. So this is really the first time when, you know, she's kind of like made a bid for Bellamy to give her that kind of like moral support, like literally moral support, yeah, leadership support. And he refused it and not just refused it, but actually just like threw it back at her, you know, like absolutely just rejected 
Well, yeah, I mean, again, he's like, I know you think this is what you were doing, but it wasn't. You're right, wrong. exactly, exactly. Yeah, yeah, so I mean- He uses like the... the same language they always use, but he was like, no. But he was refusing it, yeah. Yeah. So, 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 I mean, that's kind of like the first step in this, like, in this thread where, where Bellamy kind of like repudiating her is the thing that's really kind of forcing Clark to start to unravel again and again like Bellamy is the is the sort of more consistent thread through the episode but I do think Abby is also is also a factor there obviously like her mom is and I'm gonna put it out here that part of what makes this hard I think to talk about is that both of those are after that first scene almost entirely subtextual yes that's a very good point so I mean so yeah so I guess maybe we should talk about the other sort of Balarky scenes yeah, there's only actually, I mean, there's the scene when she puts Murphy in. Right. Which I think is really important because it's when she decides not to talk to him, which I'm still disappointed about. Yeah, you know, that's one of those scenes where like, so I actually like that she didn't talk to him. I think it makes total sense. Like, yeah. In that in that moment, you know, and, and especially to see her hesitate, say yes, listen to him scream. You know, again, like Liza's face, just like registering all of that, that sort of like pain. Like, it's very, very apparent that she simply cannot face yeah listening to him say to her what she thinks that what she knows he's going to say yeah to her. it's you know, she, like you said with the earlier it's another one of those scenes where as i'm watching it makes sense but in retrospect i'm like this was when you needed to have a scene with them yeah exactly and i think i i sort of wish because i do like that she sort of couldn't do it so i don't want to take that away but, yeah but like the but but again the issue is that like I think they really, I really needed her to have a confrontation. And actually, honestly, so here's my deal. I think I what I really, really needed from this episode that we didn't get, um, and well, we kind of got. So this is my, this is my I, the one scene in the bunker storyline that didn't work for me was the Nyla scene. I mean, it has nothing to do with Nyla. It really doesn't. Lovely. I mean, I, I sort of like, I don't really get what's going on in Nyla's head in that scene, but, you know. Like Much like Miller, Nyla's actual mental progressions in this episode make no sense to me. Me neither, but, like, it's also just, like, she's not, she's fairly thinly characterized as a character, you know? It's, like, reasonably within what we know of her, what little we know of her, so, like, fine, that's that's fine. Whatever. Yeah. So, yeah, so I I have no problem with with Nyla. I'm, I, I'm, like, I was, like, really intensely uncomfortable with the way that that conversation sort of happened in the context of cuddling, but I... Yeah. I acknowledge that I, I am also a person who doesn't like to be touched when I'm really upset. So it might just be me being, like, thinking about being in Clark's state of mind and having someone hold me, and I'm just like, <laughs> So... Yeah, it just felt, like, sort of weirdly, like, this scene isn't interesting enough if they're just talking, so let's get a little, like, groping in there. <laughs> yeah, I don't, I don't know, and I think it was just supposed to be comfort or something, but so here's my, so, so anyway, so this is all a disclaimer to be, like, this is nothing against Nyla, but I have a big problem with having that piece of character exposition for Clark happen in that way and only that way and only that way and it's like a couple of things so like first of all that scene was like really really intensely weird to me because like it sort of starts out she walks in she's looking around and Nyla's like so you're committing genocide and Clark's like oh that makes me feel bad and Nyla's like whatever get in the bed (laughs) (laughs) yeah I mean no (laughs) 
Which, like, okay, whatever. But then, like, so, so, but there's no transition. Like, it just was so weird and awkward to me. With that, like, Clark just, like, lays down and then she's like, I will now deliver my rationale for this decision that I have made. If everyone dies, no one can run the technology necessary to keep us alive. Therefore, I must do this in order to keep the human race alive. And Nyla's like, yeah, that's rough, buddy. Yeah. And like, not to say that Eliza does not sell the shit out of that scene because she sells the shit out of every scene. Like, she's crying, whatever. So it felt like really like awkward and forced and just like exposition-y to me. It was like very much like we need to like tell the audience what Clark is thinking. So here's an exposition dump with Nyla there to so Clark is not actually literally talking to herself. Which would have been hilarious, so. Right, like, I mean, like, you know, I don't know, give her a mirror. Just be like, Clark, remember. But but the real reason why I think, why, like, my real sort of, like, issue with that scene is that I think of all of the choices that you could have made to deliver that information about Clark and about the story, they chose the one that they, I think they made the worst choice in terms of story and character. The one with the least yeah. emotional resonance, the least amount of possibilities, because that scene does not get Clark anywhere. I mean, she's coming from, you know, not talking to Bellamy. So we can sort of understand that, like, the problem is that she feels, you know, I, you can sort of headcanon. Like, okay, so the, her confidant would be, would be Bellamy. But, like, she can't talk to him. She can't talk to her mother. So she's just going to say it out loud, you know, to Nyla. But she's totally alone, you know? Well, it's not even clear that she knew Nyla was there. So it's not, like... Maybe she was supposed to. I genuinely cannot tell we were talking about this. But, like, it's not even like she went and found Nyla for this. No, no, no. I think Nyla was... I don't I don't think she did. I think she was just going to take... Like, it didn't seem yeah. like she knew that Ni- she was going to find Nyla. It was just... So it feels like, you know, Nyla's there and she's giving her some comfort and, and Clark's just saying what's on her mind. Which, like, okay, fine. But, like, the, the other option that this foreclosed, which I'm sad it foreclosed, is having that conversation, learning that information about Clark's state of mind in the context of one of her major established relationships like her talking to her mother you know her her, abby saying like what is going on with you you know like her talking about if if she'd had that conversation with abby if it had come out in in a moment that could have also given us a, a sort of deeper look into where clark is at in, with with regards to her primary relationships. You know, she could have talked about her father. She, it could have basically, like, she, it could have functioned in a way that really gave us some character progression in terms of, of where Clark is at and what her decision, what this decision means to Clark in terms of who she is. That's the part that I don't think we ever really got textually that I really, really wanted, that I think we could not get with that Nyla scene. And that's why I'm like, nothing against Nyla. I just really, really, I'm sort of like, I'm I'm upset at the the kind of like like I said character development and story development possibilities that were left on the table because they basically were just like and now Clark will do the closest equivalent that we have to an office you know like office style to the camera here's yeah. what's happening in my head in this scene hi Claire hi Claire hi so I'm here and I agree with everything you guys are saying and I also had many thoughts about that scene so I first of all I totally agree with you I wanted that moment to be between her and Abby and one of my sort of core frustrations and I think Hawthorne Whisperer pointed this out on Twitter and I was unable to stop thinking about it as I was rewatching it was that every interaction between Clark and Abby in this episode 
was centered on Jaha. Yep. Yeah. They never addressed each other directly. They only talked to Jaha. So they were in the room together, but like Clark would talk to Jaha and then Jaha would respond to Abby and then Abby would respond to Jaha. So it was all like ping-ponging off of him. And I think Paige and Eliza sold it with their faces in this way of like, Abby is so upset she kind of can't look at her daughter and Clark is so crushed to see Abby. The actresses filled in a lot of gaps yes. in a scene that like in a storyline and relationship that was wildly underwritten in terms of them having a moment to connect in it. But the fact that Jake was brought up with Abby and Jaha. Yeah, Clark wasn't even there. I know. We were clearly meant to go there with the Jake parallel because Jaha said his name and I, I totally ship Nylark. I love Nyla. I liked how that scene started. Like, I liked having her push back a little bit. And then part of my issue with it was it really felt like I wanted Nyla as a character who we know in the past. Like, she's very kind and empathetic, but she also has very strong opinions. And she's, like, she has in the past been kind of Clark's get-a-grip friend about stuff. Right. Yeah. And so having her not have more of a reaction to the fact that Clark has just condemned all of Nyla's people to death felt like if we're going to use Nyla to exposit this, let her be a, a person. Like, yeah. At heart, my big issue was the reason it got under my skin. I couldn't quite articulate it the first time. And watching it again, I think it was because the scene was presented with Clark sort of saying, here's where I'm at. And there was no counterpoint because it wasn't yeah. an argument. It wasn't a discussion or a debate. It felt to me like, am I meant to be reading this scene as like, I feel bad for Clark and I'm supposed to be happy that someone is on her side and taking care of her and supporting her in this decision because I actually don't feel that. No. Like, I feel like in some ways if you removed the Nyla scene and if the necessary information that we do need to get about the machinery and all that kind of stuff like if that nugget was presented to us in a way where like it was in the Clark Abby Jaha debate scene so we got that information but we listed out the Nyla scene then it actually does really feel like in some ways Clark's trajectory over this episode feels more clear like it feels like we're seeing her making choices that we're meant to believe are bad and hiding behind Jaha who's the person who for some reason this whole episode was about <laughs> right totally totally I think also I mean like I think that's another reason why that scene really sucked a lot of momentum and tension out of what to that point had been a really propulsive episode you know it's a scene that lets Clark off the hook Yes, exactly. Yes, yes, entirely. And I, on a visceral level and also on a story level, I don't want Clark to be getting comfort and reassurance and snuggles. Like, this is the first time that I've seen a scene between her and Nyla that I really felt like this scene did not belong here. I loved it the last time. I really like Nyla. Yeah, no, I thought the scene in Arcadia with Nyla was... Was perfect. It was yeah. like, this is spot on. It did a lot of work. The relationship they have makes perfect total sense. It brought a lot of stuff to the forefront. It was handled in a really nice way. In that context, I was really happy that Clark was getting some comfort. Like that Clark had somebody that she could go and just kind of like take a minute, breathe a little bit, somebody who was being supportive. Like in that context, I was like, I'm 100% here for that. Yeah, and also somebody with who there was where the stakes were low for Clark. I yeah. Think Clark needed somebody. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
the stakes were low for Clark there. And I think part of what didn't work about this scene was that the stakes were all about Clark and they really should have been like the fact that Nyla had no stakes in the last one make total sense. Yeah. The fact, the fact yeah. that she didn't have stakes in this one was very jarring. Yeah, no, I agree. And I think also to go back to your point, Claire. So like, I think this is what, this is where I'm sort of, I feel like part of the problem, part of my frustration with Clark in this episode and a little bit, I think maybe a microcosm of, you know, Clark issues throughout the season is that I just kind of want them to pick a lane with Clark. You yeah. Know, like yeah. either drop the Nyla scene, drop the let Clark off the hook scene and have this really be about Clark doubling down on an indefensible position, you know, and finally breaking it down at yeah. the end. Or if the story you're trying to tell is from one perspective, Clark's decision is terrible, but it is actually defensible and like has, and reasonable. If that's the story you want to tell, then double down on that. The problem with the Nyla scene, the problem with the fact that she just said that to no, to essentially no one with her back to Nyla, Nyla didn't have a response, just delivering it as like, here are some facts. It didn't give, I think, credit to or due weight to the difficult decision that Clark made if that was the point of that scene. If Clark really, truly, deep with conviction believes that she made the right choice as terrible as she feels about it if she really truly as she apparently does because she chased after Bellamy believe that if you open those doors everyone will die then let her stand up for that with someone who's pushing back at her so that we can understand so that we can feel her hysterical fear for the loss of the human race because the other thing the other problem with I think Clark here and this goes back to what we were talking about with the 409 podcast about Clark is that we're back to Clark and abstractions Yep. You know, Clark's like, right. I'm trying to save the human race. Like, okay, well, the human race is made up of individual human beings about whom you have stopped giving any fucks, right. apparently. And like Clark, those two things are inseparable, you know? So right. being like my my motivation is the human race, not my mother or my, you know, my surrogate dad or my best friend or my best friend's sister or anything else. It's like deeply unsympathetic. And I think they gave us her sort of reasoning for it. It's good reasoning, but I think it, it kind of just doesn't really land. If we're meant to sort of like sympathize with that, I don't know. I, I just thought it was like, for whatever they were trying to do with it, I thought doing that scene in that way was just like the wrong choice. I think here's where where I feel like it sort of undercuts what I liked about, um, like when we were talking about the last episode with Selena, you and I both really liked the reveal of this at the end being like a surprise twist instead of something where we watched Clark and Jaha talk this out, make this decision in a way that was more textual. My liking for that as a device that is sort of like, bam, Bellamy wakes up and it's like, oh, holy shit, what happened? Is now complicated by the fact that because because there suddenly is this kind of back and forth, am I supposed to be empathetic with Clark or not? That I actually now do feel kind of like the election episode. I do feel like if this is the way they were going, then I really needed to see Clark make that decision. You know, if if she's like, we did what we had to do, I stand by this. And like, yeah, like you said, I have her articulate that point about the machinery, whatever, you know, to somebody else. And maybe you guys already talked about this before, um, before I got here, but like at heart, my macro issue with this whole thing is that like plot wise it just feels totally nonsensical like if they yeah. have radios yeah like why are right. we so convinced everyone's <laughs> gonna kill them yeah it makes no sense clark has all these fears that she could literally just talk to someone to find out if it's happening the first big problem that all these problems go off of is everyone is talking like they don't know who won the conclave <laughs> and the answer is 
call someone. <laughs> like the answer is like, well, it, you have radios. They find out in like the first two minutes of the episode what happened in the conclave. Like yeah, it's not right. even long. It takes and, and no Clark, time yeah. at all. And and, and Jaha's like, well, who cares? We made the decision. And Clark is like, I don't like this, but shrug emoji. You know, like yeah. The f- <laughs> I'm deeply frustrated with that about Clark in this episode. Yeah, like she's yeah. clearly yeah. it changes stuff for her, and then it just like in the first scene it looks like Clark is seriously rethinking stuff because of the conclave results which she should be and then they just keep treading water with it well and they have her say she says like we were right yesterday we're wrong today but she doesn't change anything that she's doing it's like you know you're wrong but why so why are you doubling down and then like again if they had followed through on the doubling down doubling down and then watch her change her she's basically being kind of wishy like she's trying to talk herself into it with Nyla but again why is she trying to talk herself into it why isn't she just like oh yeah you're right we should go we can politic this right this is what i don't understand and i and i think some of this not not all of it but some of it could have been resolved if there had been a direct moment that was about clark versus octavia because what octavia did was what clark tried to do so the idea of like sharing the bunker equally among all of the clans is like a very clark plan and so the idea that it's now totally off the table like i just i didn't I didn't understand why, A, suddenly everyone was acting like opening the bunker door was... Like, like at first I was like, are they thinking that it's certain death because radiation would seep in? But no, it really seemed to be like there's a mob of people on the other side of this door who will murder us all instantly and then no one knows... No one who, who survives will know how to run a hydroponic farm and humanity will Which die out. Which it's so unclear where that idea came from. <laughs> right. It's also a truly bizarre belief for Clark, of all people, to cling to. Right. Like, Octavia right. won that conclave. Clark knows what that... I mean, we sort of had last yeah. episode them paying lip service to maybe they won't go along with us, but Octavia won the conclave and was like, we're all getting the uh, bunker. So, like, they have no reason to riot against Octavia as long as they just go along with the deal right. that she did, which was Clark deal in the first place right so really the only problem is the problem that they've set up for next episode and totally skated past this time which is the big crisis is now they have to call four-fifths of their own people the riot problem should have been internal from the beginning and that makes some sense where like Clark and Jaha hesitating to open the doors because opening the doors means telling their own people just kidding we told you you were safe and now you're not that's a real problem that makes perfect sense why they would be like if we don't tell anybody about this deal we don't tell any of our people what Octavia did and we quietly let her and Kane die, then our people are safe and fine and we won't have any riots. That's a very Jaha plan. Yeah, like, that's is, a very arc Jaha thing to do. Like, I'm going to strategically withhold this information to prevent a riot from within. But that's the problem. That's next episode's problem. They In, in between, we had to live with this whole weird notion that was disproved by every time they cut back and forth to polis that like these guys really think on the other side of this hatch door there's a pitchforks and torches angry mob of grounders but they could just pick up the phone and check yeah and they never do and like jaha literally refused to do that but you know what i think claire that actually gets to i think that gets to the real reason why i think this episode just kind of like goes out with a whimper and just kind of yeah. like does not does not work as an episode, despite having, as Ch- Shash and I were saying uh, earlier, 
you know, individually contained a lot of fantastic scenes. And that is that uh-huh. all of the major stakes for everything that happens in this episode are delayed and not paid off in this episode. So like the yep. fact that the fact that literally none of Clark's fears are ever even for a moment suggested to be reasonable up to and including the point when they open the door and everything seems to be fine makes Clark There look, is no tension in this episode. There's no tension. None at all because because we know that if they just open it, it'll be fine, which also makes Clark just look like completely unreasonable, which totally undercuts Clark. So like it which totally undercuts her reasoning. So so that kind of saps tension out of it. That that really takes away from Clark's character in terms of us in terms of her motivations being logical, you know. And then same thing with like we can we can maybe um because we still haven't gotten to talking about the um the gun the, the gun scene. thing yeah yeah so i think same thing with that scene that scene i mean again eliza's face and bob's face are just like the best faces the best faces like the things that they can do with their faces are amazing and all the actors just sell the shit out of everything that scene in and of itself it was i thought it was like especially the second time watching it it's a really great scene. Like, I feel like, you know, you can really, really feel the, like, agony between both of them. You know, like, Clark's desperation to try to carry through with what she's convinced herself she has to do. Um, and her inability to shoot, you know, her friend in the face. And Bellamy saying it's going to have to be a kill shot and his sort of sadness looking at her. Like, it's a fantastic scene and it works great right up until the point where she drops the gun. We cut away from her and never, ever, ever cut back. Nope. We never get to see, like, she drops the gun and she starts to cry and Bellamy turns away and walks away. We never get to see the fallout from that. We never get to see Clark's reaction after Bellamy walks upstairs. We never get to see what she's feeling or what she's going through. We never get to see Bellamy come back in and then look at each other. We have no clue. They're just together in that room at the end and sort of like on other sides of the table with yeah, no we explanation. Yeah, have no idea what that experience yeah. meant to either of them. And I assu- I mean, I assume they're going to come back to it next week. But again, like that's fucking next week, you know? Like, so well, it's just kind of like, ugh. <laughs> and it's true and it applies to like the whole group too because like we don't see how Kane and Octavia look at Clark we yeah. don't see like is Clark ashamed to face Octavia now we don't watch Octavia get the whole story of what happened we don't see Kane and Abby reunite which made me furious oh yeah absolutely we cut to everyone including Jaha yeah like why the hell is Jaha there <laughs> why do you even let Jaha stay why the hell is Jaha the emotional focus of the final scene. That's the other thing that drove me crazy. The scene fades out on this zoom on his... Like, this is, like, my core problem with this whole No story. one cares about Jaha. <laughs> this is my big issue with the whole Bunker storyline is every piece of it was framed about Jaha. Jaha. Yeah. He was the center visually. He was the center of every one of those shots. You know, like when Clark and Abby are talking to him, it's like he's in the middle and they're addressing him directly. That cutaway shot at the very end of like what's going to happen, you know, next week you have like Bellamy and Clark and Kane and Abby together after Octavia leaves in this sort of what do you want to do? And then the like fade out is on like Jaha staring into the middle distance with the Cadigan thing behind his head. And and especially like, and I know I know this shouldn't play into it in how you watch the scene, but it does. Now that we know Isaiah isn't coming back next season as a regular, like we don't know if he dies or goes off or he's gonna guest star or like whatever. But we know that this isn't setting up a storyline where like Jaha becomes Chancellor again. You know, like I don't think this is building Even up if it did. You know what? Here's the thing. 
I don't have a problem. I don't have a problem with Jaha being a central player in the plot in this episode. Like Jaha, Jaha's sure. manipulating Clark and his manipulations drive events. Like I'm totally fine with Jaha being there as kind of like this like weird Svengali, whatever. Yeah. But Jaha sure. is never the emotional focal point or never should be the emotional focal point in the storyline with Abby and Clark and Bellamy and Kane and Octavia. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Of all the characters. Yeah. Like, fine, he can be a, a plot focal point, but the, the person whose emotional state we need to be keyed into at the end of that episode is not Jaha. Not even no. close. Like, literally any other of those <laughs> other people would have been great. Literally any right. of them. Pick one. Like, Clark would have been best. Clark would have been best, but any of them would have been great, yeah. you know? <laughs> right. Well, it's like, because, like, the rest of them, like, those five people are a family unit. Yeah. yeah. And, like, they are, like, they're, they've been fragmented, and so, like, at some point, so, like, we see them at the end, they're, to some degree, united, although, although... I think unsure about like what direction they're going to go or whatever, but like that's a family, you know, and, and Jaha is the one who's the interloper. And so the thing that is just bizarre to me is how, in a, in a weird way, this ties into why the Nylark scene felt tonally weird is like, I genuinely don't know if the narrative wants me to be sympathetic to Jaha and Clark's plan or not because of those weird framing things. Yeah. Like, yeah. like it, it feels like you have this clear downward trajectory, like Selena put it so beautifully in last episode, Clark's whole season arc being on this sort of downward spiral as like we see, you know, her making more and more unilateral decisions and more and more secrecy and pulling away from you know, the other delinquents and seeing things in abstractions in ways that become real, real problems. And so this episode, you know, two episodes from the end, I wanted this to be the episode where what we're really seeing is the clash between that abstraction and the reality manifested in the fact that she shoots a gun at her best friend. Mm -hmm. Right, exactly. And so that, so it's like the whole thing, building, 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 Jaha getting more and more in her head, her becoming more and more Jaha-esque in, you know, in all these different ways. And then that stairwell scene should have been the culmination of that and it's so dire. It's such a, like, this is Clark's rock fucking bottom moment. Then we see it has to be transformative in some way. Immediately transformative in some way. And maybe, like you said, maybe next episode, some moment will happen where we see her realize, oh no, I did something terrible. But the fact that we didn't see it immediately after she shot that gun, or in how, like, how can Bellamy look at her the same now after knowing that she did that like how do we not get some kind of reconciliation or some follow-up to that in before they're all like well now here we all are back on the leadership squad together and now we got to figure out what we're going to do about all those other people and it immediately became about everybody outside that room and stopped being about the people in the room except for Jaha right (laughs) and it's especially weird because the first half of this episode well the first half of the bunker story and the second half of the bunker story are just, like, totally different beasts. Yeah. Because, like, Shasha and I were talking about before you got here, Claire, like, there was so much in the first part of that storyline that really framed over and over again Clark's kind of emotional state and how she feels about the decision that she made in terms of Bellamy's reaction. That long, lingering reaction shot after Bellamy's been shocklashed and he's laying on the floor, you know, like, staring at her in total betrayal, Uh and she just looks, like, ripped up, you know? And the fact that she couldn't bring herself to talk to him, like... They set up over and over again, they set up so carefully that the way that Clark is 
processing what it means for her to have made this choice and to stick with it is through the way that it's sort of pulling her away from Bellamy. You know, that that it's sort of like transforming her relationship with Bellamy. So the fact that they didn't follow all the way through on that to show us at least how, how that final scene changes Clark having a moment of entertaining the thought of killing Bellamy to stop him mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and then not being able to do him do it and having him turn away from her not following all the way through on that arc that they set up that this is the fault line yeah you know, to see where she's at is just like bizarre to me it's so weird it feels like it was so almost there you know <laughs> like yeah 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 the building blocks for a version of this story that could have been incredibly like gut-wrenching and emotionally impactful were all right there and it was like framed so weirdly. Like the thing that just made me want to like just jump up and down and cheer about this episode that then feels like in some ways it doesn't fit with everything else that happened in that storyline was like I've been waiting for fucking seasons for an Abby and Bellamy Rebel Squad (laughs) storyline. So I was so like it was perfect and it was beautiful and I was so happy and it was exactly what I wanted. It was like they're gonna team up to like get Octavia and you know and Kane back. It's like I loved all that that was amazing and just exciting and awesome and he's like he's injuring himself on purpose so he can get Abby there because this is like glorious and yet the piece of it that I think was missing that I think might have clarified a lot of this is like I also wanted there to be a layer of like Abby and Bellamy the two most important people in Clark's life trying to figure out how to save her from herself like I think in, in some way having it be about Octavia and Kane primarily over it being about Clark in some way felt like I wanted both of those pieces together because I think that that would give us a chance to continue to tap into how does this look to Bellamy and how does this change their relationship permanently and you know like I said before like none of it was about Clark and Abby like this is the kind of thing that should permanently have changed in some really significant ways Clark's relationship with many of these people with Octavia who she left to die even though Octavia did everything right and did exactly what Clark told her to do and with the grounders and with her mom and with Bellamy and we just cut to setting up next week's crisis the stakes for how everyone feels about the thing that Clark did now that everybody knows it and that's all out in the open I felt really cheated by not having gotten emotional resolution, the ongoing fragmenting of those relationships. Yeah, like this should have been an absolutely huge Clark episode. It needed to be. And in the end, it was a nothing Clark episode almost. Like, again, you've got all these scenes at the beginning that are good, but there's just no follow up. So it ends up the impact of this episode on Clark is completely unclear at the end of it. The thing that makes that really extra sort of depressing is the juxtaposition of that with what was happening in the two other storylines where like we have, you know, we have Jasper and Harper and Monty in Arcadia and then Raven on Science Island who like as far as Clark knows and we and we know that she must know like the other groups have come back. She knows that they've all stayed behind Mm -hmm. to die. So I feel like what I wanted from Clark's storyline in this sort of like continual like sort of pushing and pushing and pushing and pushing and pushing of the abstractions and the my people and the saving humanity at the expense of the human relationships crystallizing that in the relationship between her and Bellamy and her mom in a way that reminds us that she's also leaving all these other core people like Raven and Octavia and Kane and Jasper and Harper and Monty all these people who are like hugely important to her from the beginning that she's leaving Mm -hmm. them all to die and and that she's chosen this abstraction over 
all of these real people. And so allowing that to kind of crystallize in what we see happening between her and Bellamy is like one of her like most central relationships as a reminder of how far she's come from the leader that she used to be when she was like a member of their group, you know, like thinking. Yeah. So, so it just, it felt like it made Jasper's death even more sort of desolate and tragic thinking like, is Clark going to have any reaction to this at all? Is anyone going to have any reaction to this? Right. It's like, we don't, we don't see it changing her. We don't see her realize who have I become. We don't see her yeah. encounter the stakes of what she did. Yeah. You know, I, I was thinking about this and like, I think if the point is that Clark is sort of isolating herself more and more and more and like I think it was it must be on purpose right that even as she's talking to Nyla and Nyla is sort of there for her that Clark is totally closed off to Nyla like yeah Clark seems really alone in that scene even though she's not like it seemed like she wasn't really looking for anyone she was just looking to kind of be alone yeah so if that's all on purpose and Clark is isolating just like think about like if you added an extra 15 seconds to the end of that between the time when Clark drops the gun and we see Bellamy go up the stairs and we don't follow Bellamy out right away but like we stay with Clark and she just like drops the gun and crumples onto the floor and we get a shot of her for a few seconds lingering showing how completely alone she is Mm -hmm. yeah like just Clark alone sitting there watching Bellamy walk away from her crying broken that would have done a lot on its own yeah to kind of drive home without anything like that we don't have a way to read that scene like that's true. we don't have any context for what's gonna happen in next episode right. with any of Clark's relationships exactly they could just drop this at this point and I they hope could. they don't but like they honestly could yeah. this could be the end of it yeah, I mean, like, that that was, like, that was literally me just being, like, here's a reading of Clark and yeah, the yeah. scene that would be a conclusion to that. But I don't actually know that that's the right reading. So you're right. Like, that's that's the problem. Yeah, I said I wanted, because of who I am as a person, that I wanted a scene after where we see them coming back in and Bellamy stops and waits for her, which would have been right. yes, yes. a different reading of that scene and is yes. equally possible based on what we saw in the episode. <laughs> yes, absolutely, absolutely. Like, my Belark heart really wanted him to stop and, like, hug her before he went and hugged Octavio, but, you know. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think he had to go up there first, but yeah, I wanted yes, something yes. after that with them, you know, if they're back on the same side by the end of this episode, then we need to see him stopping and getting her or something right Right. but we don't have anything so we don't actually know yeah like i have no idea and this is why like i think why it's such a problem that we don't know any of this was that i read it totally differently was that like in my heart Ah. i was thinking what i was picturing it imagining like bellamy and octavia walking back in past clark who's alone and crying neither of them being able to look at her yeah right that could happen. Yeah, and we have no idea, you know. We have absolutely no idea, but we know they end up all together in the same room at the end. That's all we know. Right. It's, you know, it's like the election episode where it's like sometimes you have these big moments where a big piece of plot machinery needs to be moved into place. And I get that you want to do that as sort of efficiently as possible. But if we don't understand how they came to that decision, then we don't really feel anything about what's happening between these people, you know. It feels like we had to move some chess pieces into place 
to get to the like riot that happens next episode setting up what seems to look like some kind of a like Kane versus Jaha leader showdown and then we've got an Arcadia people whatever uprising I 100% could believe that the next episode starts with Clark hugging her mom goodbye and going off with the away team to go get Raven including Bellamy and this is never addressed again like I 100% I feel like that's a totally likely scenario because they didn't set this up like it was going to have ongoing stakes which is infuriating if they do that I will be very upset no I'm going to be I will riot I would also like to note that if all they're trying to do is if the point of this was to set up for the hundred people you know whatever fight club bullshit they're going for in the next episode it's even more of an anticlimax because you could get that exact same result if Clark had just gotten through to people at the beginning before the conclave happened yeah one of the things that I loved about the twist at the end of the last episode was that it really felt like oh man this is this is why it matters that you know even though Octavia is doing the exact same thing Clark wanted to do because of this betrayal it's not just like we wasted an episode to get to the same result but now it's just like we wasted two episodes to get to the same result yeah I mean that's I think that's what I find really frustrating (laughs) about it is because like because at its heart the core problem required a massive suspension of disbelief to accept that it was a problem because they had radios and they made contact (laughs) immediately. So like, because I don't grant your central premise that you made this decision in full ignorance. Well, I mean, I guess like they have the problem where maybe until the conclave is over they can't use the radios but like <laughs> and then and then tell us that you know like if the if the problem yeah. is like if they can't jaha says the you know the walkies don't work so they would have to use like the fancy whatever bunker radios and page Kane and somebody's walkie talkie like the problem is we can't give away that we're in the bunker without like until we know how the conclave played out then all right fine then like then let jaha tell us that but it just it feels like it feels like the whole thing was built on one of those things that happen in like cheesy soap operas where somebody it's the miscommunication trope except they didn't even miscommunicate because they i don't understand why they had them find out in the first two minutes of the episode how the conclave turned out because it just made the stakes of the episode completely incoherent exactly if the point if the problem was here's a way to get all the same plot beats is have no radios work yeah like they don't know what happened they don't know what happened abby and bellamy are like we gotta risk this and yeah and Jaha are like no we don't there's a conflict that makes logical sense right there absolutely could be a mob of furious armed grounders standing outside the door Luna could have won Octavia could be dead no one has any idea and so then all of a sudden what Abby and Bellamy are doing feels wildly risky and high stakes and it gives a little bit more grounding to Clark and Jaha being like look there's a certainty and then there's an uncertainty and yes you're right things could be better if we open the door but they also could be worse and right now they're stable and so like do we want to take that risk and that's a way more defensible position like being like listen yes people that you care about are outside and that's terrible and we totally get it but also everything else is a huge question mark they could open the door and find like a whole fucking army and like Octavia has been murdered and as Gato won and like echoes on the warpath and just comes in and fucking slaughters everyone like yeah like we could totally have left that with a possibility where like we the audience know that that didn't happen but they have no idea yeah they sacrificed all dramatic irony you know yes i would also like to point out that if they didn't have radios 
And Octavia didn't know what was happening. And she just had faith in her brother because she had faith in her brother because last week she saw that he believed in her. I will nitpick this, that if they didn't have radios, Octavia wouldn't know her brother was in there. Oh, that's true. So I'll, I'll... I'll go on the record and say that for Octavia to have her faith in her brother, they have to have radios because she doesn't know where he is until he picks that up. That's true. That's a good point. Although I feel like you could somehow work around that, but it would be more trouble. But again, I don't think it's much as I love those scenes. I'm not convinced that makes it worth it. Yeah. And, and I mean, like you could still have her be like, I don't know where Bellamy is, but I have faith that he's, I mean, she could know that he disappeared. Yeah. She definitely knows he disappeared. Worried about him or, or have faith that he was going to come back she knows the bunker doors are closed she's like okay clearly bellamy found out something was up and he's working for us right and you could have like echo come in or or indra say like the doors are closed it's your people in there are you really sure that your brother didn't just go in there and have octavia be like defending him yeah 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 to those people it would have taken them five minutes to figure out like everyone is in their safe zones and sky crew safe zone is empty yeah 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 so i so instead of having her first reaction be like bellamy what the hell did you do having everyone else's first reaction be like fuck sky crew and also your brother and having octavia against all reason and against all objective information maintaining that like no bellamy wouldn't do this bellamy is on my side calling back to what she overheard him saying to roan yeah yeah knowing in her heart bellamy truly had faith that she would win yeah and he would never do this although not that i didn't love the blake stuff in this episode that hug i like i mean i was already crying a little because of the the blark scene there were a lot of feelings there was a lot of feeling that was like middle stretch of the episode i was just like crying all the way through and I definitely cried at that. But like, I, you know, but again, like this is one of those things where like, if you don't have the fucking like, oh, everything's cool in the first two minutes, I don't, I just, bleh. Yeah. <laughs> but again, I think I'm a lot of my frustration is partly because the first part of that storyline, everything was clicking so awesome. You know, yeah, like yeah. the first part of that, that first scene was, it was great. Again, all the awards to Eliza Taylor and her face and yep. the things that she does with her face, like, she was amazing, you know, the, like, the gut punch, those gut punch moments of Clark learning what was happening, like, we wouldn't have gotten those, and those were amazing. The Abby Bellamy reveal. I was so happy to have, like, Slytherin rebel Abby back, like, I was so happy that the show, yes. the show remembered who Abby Griffin is, and her going head-to-head with Jaha was beautiful, and her, like, schemey rebel brain, and her pragmatism as a leader combined with the incredible, like, compassion that she has and the fact that she just cannot let people that she immediately goes to like we could save these people we could save them like it it, that it actually that it isn't about Kane for her which I thought was so beautiful was like she wants Kane back but she's not solely motivated by go get Kane she's like we could save all these people and I loved I mean like I absolutely adored all of the Bellamy Abbey scenes I thought they were perfect I thought I mean, I was, I'm, I'm so happy the last two weeks, I have to say, I'm so happy that they remember that Bellamy is clever as fuck, you know? Like, yep. I yes. really, really love... Bellamy's been on fire the last two weeks. Yes. He's been so good. Yeah. So good. And, like, OG Bellamy, you know, and, like, Bob is also just amazing. But I, yeah. I love the reveal that, like, his, like, losing his mind was a ploy. Because that's... Yes! Perfect. He knows exactly 
how, how people expect him to react. So he does it. You know, he's like performing the like, I'm Bellamy, I'm going crazy over my sister thing. Everyone's going to buy it. They'll send a doctor down. It's exactly. going to be Abby. And I'm going to talk her into it because she yes. knows that this is bullshit. I cheered out loud at my television when he was like, well, it took you long enough. I did this for fun. And I was like, oh my God, this is brilliant. I was so happy. And I think that really kind of brings back like having Bellamy and Abby in that team. I think you've talked, Claire, a lot about the way that, you know, Bellamy and Abby are really, there's a lot of parallels between them, but I think also they're kind of a perfect sort of team in that, or Abby is very similar to Clark too, you know, where she like thinks strategically, kind of pragmatic, but if you like give her a pitch, she'll go with it, you know, and Bellamy is the kind of like, Bellamy is less pragmatic and strategic, you know, like. (laughs) Bellamy's plan is literally, I'm going to either open this door or die. Let's do this. Right, right, right. Yeah. (laughs) I like, I remember like I yelled in the group chat when that was, when we watched that, I was like, I love you, Bellamy, but that is not a plan. Like Bellamy's (laughs) plans are never plans. They're just like, let's just punch someone until they fall down. (laughs) And then Abby's like, or a slight modification of your crazy plan (laughs) is this much more smooth plan with a hypodermic instead of a shock lash. Yeah. And you know, Bellamy's just like pouting behind the door. Like, you know what I could be doing right now? Nearly getting myself killed. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) I I love like, like the first, Bellamy always has like a really clever, like first third of a plan (laughs) he's like he's like okay i'm gonna do this and then this and then this and then i'm just gonna wing it i'm just gonna like the underpants gnome from south park it's like you know (laughs) step one steal underpants step two question mark step three profit that is literally every plan bellamy has ever had step one hurt myself step two uh abby comes step three question mark step Step four step three clark does something (laughs) but you know what i really what i really liked about the way the plan played out was that bellamy was the perfect person for the part of the con that involved fooling Murphy because he knows Murphy the best but Abby knows Jaha the best and so like Bellamy had to play like what you said about Bellamy knows exactly what people expect him to do and Abby did the same thing and so Bellamy's sort of playing the role of Bellamy to Murphy in in a way that like got Murphy to do what he needed him to do by playing exactly to type by like wounding himself to the point of like bleeding you know from the wrist trying to like pull himself loose from a fucking turbine to go free Octavia (laughs) is like it's like Bellamy to the point of farcical in terms of like stereotype with an Abby coming in to Jaha and being like she's also in some way like playing the exaggerated role of Abby like she's being herself you know they're talking about Kane they're talking about moral decision making on the arc we could save all of these people just to get his guard down so he comes close enough so she can stab him yeah <laughs> They needed Bellamy to play Murphy and they needed Abby to play Jaha using like the exact specific skill sets they have. And so it really was, it was like, this is a beautiful little heist team and I want to watch them like go rob banks forever, you know? I know. Yeah. I screamed. When Bellamy used Kane's line from the first episode. Me too! Yes. I know you did. I was like, Claire is going to die of happiness. Yes. She did say that to our group chat. I did. (laughs) And you were so right. Here's what I loved about that. Partly just my little like dad feels heart. I wanted, deep in my soul, I wanted and needed an acknowledgement from, like an emotional acknowledgement from Bellamy that it matters to him that Kane is also out there. And I know narratively it made very clear sense that it's, of course, like it's about Octavia. It's always about Octavia. I'm not fighting that. That makes perfect sense. Like that was a relationship that needed. That is 
she's Bellamy's person, but I wanted to hear him acknowledge that Kane is also a person who means something tremendously significant to Bellamy, not just to Abby. Like the, he all that does also one of Bellamy's core relationships. But I also feel like it was a beautiful way to bring full circle that conversation in the premiere that we talked a lot about. In the moment where that line was first delivered, was it appropriate? Was it overstepping? Like, from whence does Kane kind of feel like he has this sort of relationship with Bellamy where this is advice that he can give him? And we sort of went back and forth on that, you know? And and having their relationship sort of really get kind of burnt down to the ashes and then, you know, with that, you floated my mother with that, with the Black Rain episode, and then building it back up again in the last episode. I really, like, I just needed hearing Bellamy come full circle where, like, now they reached a point where not only does he really, like, understand on a deep level what Kane was trying to tell him, but he's using Kane's words to remind Abby of who Abby is and of all of the things that Abby has learned from Kane and learned about being a leader. Of the two of them, she is one that's, like, a little bit more hesitant. Like, she actually does understand on a very deep foundational level why Jaha made the choice that she that he did. And she does need to be a little bit more talked into, like, we need to do something about this. And you know what, Claire? I'm going to be, like, high-key cabby for a second. <laughs> I think... Proceed. <laughs> I think also, Bellamy saying that to Abby reminded her why she loves Kane. Yes. yes. Like that was that moment. That like drive home. Like that's not just like, okay, it's Kane. This is who that man is outside and what he means to you and why he means so much to you and why he is, why Kane is so important as a person to save too. I totally agree. And then when she has that moment with Jaha where he says, Marcus was a good man. And then she <laughs> fucking stabbed him. That was him. the stupidest thing Jaha possibly could have said. That was amazing. Like yeah. read the room, man. You fucking asshole. Jaha, don't set yourself up for a sassy action comeback. Yeah, like, I, know, I know. Have you never seen a movie? <laughs> Rookie mistake, Thelonious. Yeah. Ja- Jaha, you chose the wrong moment to come down off of the fourth wall and lose your genre savvy. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's so true because it was, I mean, the second he said that, I was like, I know exactly where this is going, but I still cheered. <laughs> but I do think you're right. I, th- I think that Bellamy saying that to her sets up her saying that to Jaha, where it really does become about a reminder of like, at his core, the journey that Kane has been on and the person that he is, is this person who is like always and forever trying to be better than the man that he used to be. And that's why she loves him. That's why he's important to Bellamy. That's why he's a better leader in a lot of ways than who Jaha is, is because Jaha has basically doubled down on making the exact same set of choices that he used to. And Abby and Kane have fought this whole time to figure out a better way to be. Well, and it's interesting because I think, you know, in that or in that first sort of conversation scene with Abby, Clark, and Jaha, we see Abby, you know, she says it's the it's the arc again. But you see Abby sort of kind of giving in to returning to who they were on the arc. Like she's yeah. starting to kind of like mm-hmm. fall under that spell, you know, yeah. and sort of be like, well, here, okay, we're back here again, so I guess we have to make these decisions again. And Bellamy be saying that, you know, Kane's line reminds her like, you are not who you were on the arc Mm -hmm. you can make different choices now you know like so I think that was a really that was such a great scene (laughs) it really was and I and I loved like as salty as I am and will remain that now twice we have been cheated out of even a moment of eye contact at a Kane and Abby reunion you know like (laughs) they just just materialize in the same room together with no acknowledgement and it's like (laughs) I like to imagine them 
They have like personal transporters. Yeah. Kind of like. They're yeah. all in hamster balls so that they don't yeah. get too close. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. <laughs> oh my god! If you mentally, if you mentally insert hamster balls around all of the characters in the bunker stories, it actually makes a whole lot more sense. Oh, it does. This makes so much sense. <laughs> we just didn't see the hamster balls. You're right. The hamster ball was silent. Yes. <laughs> They took it out in post-production. Yeah, they took it, they, they exactly. it in post, yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, like a hamster ball theory of both. <laughs> uh, I'm, now, I'm now a hamster ball truther. <laughs> oh, right. <laughs> My job here is done. Speaking of truther theories, Roan uh, went on a run to the nearest Tim Hortons to get some yes. tickets. But unfortunately... <laughs> It's a thousand miles away in what we used to be Canada, so he's gonna be gone for a while. But he is still alive. <laughs> I'm telling you, until they burn a corpse, I'm holding out possibility. I know my hopes are dwindling, but still. But still, you can't let go. You, if you're gonna be a true truther, you can't let, get, exactly. let go, no matter what the evidence. <laughs> Roan just went for cigarettes. He'll be back. <laughs> that's right. That's right. Uh, Ro- Roan is hanging out somewhere with like Wick and Callie and Brian. Yeah. Right. Exactly. Okay, do we want to talk about uh, Raven? Yes! Dad Sinclair. Thank God for Sinclair. Oh my God. God, why can't he just come back? I miss him so much. Oh my God. Speak of people who I refuse to accept are actually dead. Yeah. I was so emotional. So I, so this is a place where like, I, I didn't, I didn't watch this clip. I was at the beach when the clips came out. So I was like with people. So I didn't like stop and like immediately watch the preview clips. Like I normally do, Look but I you knew having like friends. from seeing on Twitter <laughs> doing outside things with other humans. But that sounds um, terrible. So I knew, so I knew, like I knew that Sinclair was in one of the clips and I kind of wish that I didn't like, I kind of wish that had been left as like a kind of, surprise reveal but it meant so much to me like I mean I said I loved their relationship last season like I, I loved him really getting more stuff to do but I think it's so important like I like I can't scream loudly enough about how important it is that you know that the person who represents the best of Raven and believes the most deeply in like the true core of who Raven is and and representing her like will to survive and everything about her that's great was was a relationship that was not romantic or sexual. Yep. Yeah. Yes. It wasn't like the fact that it wasn't Finn or Wick or, you know, or anyone else that, that it was, it was a person who is um, a mentor kind of familial relationship. That's all about somebody like the first person who really truly got on a deep core level, how extraordinary she is. Yeah. You know? And, Yes. What we the the little bit of Sinclair that we get in the Spacewalker flashback really plants a seed and reminds us that like Sinclair was the first person who like truly genuinely cherished and believed in her and believed in all the things that she could accomplish. And so when he tells Becca, I'd take Raven Reyes over, you know, Mozart and Einstein and Da Vinci, you know, like every day and twice on Sundays, and I just like burst into tears I know. because like that's like that's such the core of what their relationship was, was that he, like, he looks at her and he sees this, like, extraordinary mind and this extraordinary person with this tremendous capacity. And so, like, it just, I, it was so beautiful that in her time of deepest need, that, like, the voice that comes to her and, like, reminds her of who she is and what she can do was the first person who ever really told her those things in life. 
and just the little the little shots of again like just like props to Ian for his directing like the hands like him like reaching out his hand when she's on the floor and their hands on the tank like just yeah. those little him just like being like the voice of like something positive reaching out to her in contrast to the kind of nihilist self-destructive voice of of Becca Alley or whatever sort of Becca Alley fusion we're meant to believe that was. I'm still a little fuzzy on that. Yeah, Bally. <laughs> Bally. Um, <laughs> my so like my one my one big question about that storyline still, and I'll be interested to hear what you guys think is so when she spins around in the chair and her mouth has been duct taped, which I love, which was a fantastic little moment. I immediately went straight to is Sinclair like Sinclair is like Raven's best self, and Becca is in some way a manifestation of actual Allie and not just Raven's worst self. I guess how how much are we meant to believe that the Becca hallucination has any kind of independent agency or is it like is it like angel and devil on her shoulder or is there some reason why some part of Allie's code either A wanted Raven to go to space to accomplish something to serve an alley goal or B wanted Raven to die to prevent her from doing something or prevent her from discovering something in aid of an alley goal. And I, and so that's where I'm still not sure. I'm still not sure which of those directions is supposed to go. Like, was it just the sort of manifestation of this thing that she is thinking becoming represented as Becca or is is there a piece of Allie still inside her brain you know or was there was there before she did the tank thing um because Becca's urgency to stop her yeah using words like there'll be no more pain you know like like it felt like this is a benevolent like a more benevolent version of Allie using some kind of Allie language and it really Uh, really wanted her to go to space like yeah yeah like that was very very clear and if there isn't more to that then it's really weird it's unclear what part of Raven that's supposed to be representing to me, I guess, like maybe just the part that really loved spacewalking. But again, that just doesn't seem, it doesn't feel viscerally satisfying that like that particular urge would be so strong versus just, you know, the urge to be smarter, to be like why that's how it would manifest if it's just part of Raven. No, it, yeah, no, it's definitely weird. And I, and like you said, like the, the sort of, the insistence on, I mean, if it was just, if, if, if the sort of Becca avatar hallucination or whatever was just a manifestation of Raven's death drive, you know, like if it was just, if it's just supposed to be about her psychological states and this is Raven who's sort of like driven to a sort of kind of like suicidal state because of her because she believes that she's terminally ill and because of, of her chronic pain. And and Becca is just supposed to be a representation of that part of her that rationalizes just doing something to end that pain. Then, yeah, the the sort of, like, insistence, like, like if it was just about that, then, then I feel like Allie, Becca, whatever, would have been like, or how about we do this? Or how about we do this? Or how yeah, about like, we do this? Like there why, are much easier ways to do that than going to space. Exactly. Like if if it was yeah. just about like the part of her that's just like you know like give up and give yourself a peaceful death, then like I feel like yeah like there's way easier ways to do it. And and if that was just the push, then why not like 
revert to other easier options, you know? And especially with, at the end, when she's arguing against Raven doing the, the reboot thing that might kill her. When right, she already exactly. wants her to die. Exactly, exactly. When she's like, oh, that's a waste, you know? It's like, yeah. well, okay. But, like, wouldn't her being shot into space be a waste? So, like, well, and, and, and like... It is weird that she's so like space, space, space. You want to go to the moon? We can go to the moon. Like why the moon? You know. So it's, <laughs> it does seem something does seem like that. The Becca is fixated on getting that rocket into space with Raven in it, in a way that does make Sinclair me think, feels like a logical part of Raven in a way that Becca doesn't. Yes, exactly. So I yeah, feel like there's something yeah. about that code. There's something about that code that, at the very least wants to get whatever is on that rocket into space. And it understands that Raven, that in order to make that happen, it needs a human interface, you know, and, and Raven is that interface. And so, so I don't know if it has to do with Raven per se, but something about like, or like the code in Raven has to get to something in space. Maybe it's just like the rocket has to get, you know, but it's like very fixated on getting that rocket up there. Um, and yeah, I agree with you, you both that like, that doesn't feel like Raven. That feels like something else in there. Whereas, like, yeah. yeah, Sinclair is very much like, and we know, you know, just from like from from season one, sort of details that that Raven's Raven didn't really have a mother. You know, her mother was neglectful and was kind of emotionally absent. And so, like, I also love that Sinclair. You know, Sinclair sort of like jokingly or like Dad Sinclair, but he really is kind of like a, a a parental figure. You know, he's like a figure, the only figure in her life who is somebody you know, older person who looked at her and who just, like, loves her for her, you know, and sees her and supports her and believes in her and, like, doesn't want anything from her, just wants her to be happy and alive and successful and, you know, and fulfilled. And so, and so, like, it makes total sense that, like, the the absolute core level, the voice the voice inside you that whispers, no matter what else is happening to you, the voice inside you that whispers, you have worth, you matter, you should keep living, would manifest as, you know, her, like, her parental figure. Like, that person who at that, like, very, very core lizard level, that voice in their darkest moments who's always like, yes, but this person believes that you have value, you know, and, like, that that yes, little thing to yeah. hang on to. Like, it makes me super emotional that that was Sinclair for her, you know, because, like, that is just so beautiful. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that feels like Raven, you know? And and that's why I felt like like what what made me sort of I guess kind of double down on my feelings that there is some there is some agency at play in the Becca hallucinations is the fact that like Sinclair duct taping Be- Becca's mouth shut. Like Sinclair yeah. actively silencing that voice. So it's not just like they're sort of bantering back and forth the whole time it's like Sinclair the good core truest bravest most wonderful part of Raven manifested in this person that she cared about so much who died to save her you know and that pain is still so like still so raw for her him arriving to be sort of like the good like avenging angel and then like silences this destructive voice the way in which that happened made me sort of feel like is that some some deep gut level part of Raven recognizing that the thing that's happening inside her brain is not herself. Like Sinclair that, being antibodies, is, pretty much. Yeah, like recognizing yeah, a, yeah, yeah, yeah. a foreign yeah. virus. Yeah, yes, exactly. Yeah. Like, is that is that our way of 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 understanding that some piece of Raven's brain understands that the Becca thing wasn't supposed to be there? And so, and what I wonder is if some piece of this 
in wherever Raven's storyline goes in the next two episodes, was there something that that Raven had the capacity to do that Allie, Becca, whatever, was trying to stop her from doing that she's going to realize on her own? Like, is there is there some kind of a save the world, you know, sort of thing? Or is it like, you know, she manages to to go up into space to like we talked about with with the drones and the night blood i think not last podcast but the podcast before like does she figure out a way to use the space suit that she made and use the thing that becca was trying to like talk her into doing for a different purpose and i also do wonder a little bit and i don't know now that becca's out of her brain how you know maybe this is overreaching but i it, but it did make me think about the fact that like ali is in space like ali is in the arc mainframe you know, and yeah. um, and so is was the sort of like the desire to get Raven to space in some way, Becca trying to get Raven into a place where she could re unleash Allie. I thought it like it could almost just be like I wonder if it's just a kind of like homing beacon in the yeah. code, you know? Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. Like it sort of senses like, okay, that's where that's where the mainframe is gotta get back up there. I don't but, know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I guess kinda like the Bellark stuff in this episode. I honestly could see it going either way with this comes back in the last two episodes and is a plot point or we never hear about this again and we're overthinking it, which is not where I'd like to be with it. But yeah, and I really hope that it's not. But I do feel like if there's a part of this, the episode or not the episode, but part of Raven's storyline that sort of disappoints me it's that at the end of this episode i cannot tell if she's done with that hallucination part if if that you know part what? of her storyline well, is yeah over. that's a good point yeah although you know what you know what i was thinking about rewatching the episode a little bit or it kind of like made me remember because there's a bit there's that bit when she's in the tank and she's talking to sinclair about um you know he's like asking her like okay what well, tell me your plan and he says analog i like it and becca reacts with disgust she's like this is what did yeah. she call it I can't remember what she what she calls it. This is like not barbaric, but yeah, something but it's like, like that. It's beneath you. It's like yeah, yeah, yeah. she's grossed out. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So 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 what that kind of pinged for me a little bit too with Raven is like, so Raven is not an engineer. She's a mechanic, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um. Mm-hmm. So like she's all about. She's always been about analog. And wasn't there? Am I remembering this wrong? Wasn't there somewhere in like season two, maybe one? But I feel like it was season two. I feel like it was Wick. Who said, who made a crack about like Raven being a crap computer programmer? Yeah, Wick yeah. definitely shit talked her skills in that department. Yeah. Yeah. And, Which and I think Monty, is really... and it came up. Yeah, yeah. Monty said up... something yeah. about it, right? Yeah. When he was watching, and like in the season three finale, watching her be able to like read the code, he, co- he commented a couple different times on how she used to be really shitty at this, and now she's like really amazing at and, it. And yeah. like, and so he, he called that act too. Yeah. So I think it's really interesting. Like, I, you know, I sort of remembered that watching it the second time, and suddenly that just that little bit, that little kind of bit of an exchange between the three of them there and the fact that Raven's solution in this is like mechanical analog, you know, it's making a circuit um, and sort of issuing the digital, I thought was really interesting. And it seemed to indicate something about like getting back to her kind of like her, her Raven abilities rather than her alley abilities, you mm-hmm. know, um, like yes. that, that the computer, the, the sort of like computer code part of it, is is the super raven part is the alley code it's not her and that actually and i wonder and this is another thing like shosh like you're saying like 
maybe that'll go somewhere. Maybe that's just a little, like, aside. But it does make me wonder if that won't be in play in some way. I feel like this is a lot more likely to be in play. I'm just saying yeah. I it was reminding me of that conversation where I'm like, yeah, I yeah. honestly yeah, yeah. do not know. Yeah, <laughs> it's like hard to say. Well, I mean, like, and like one thing about this sort of like end game of the season that I think is different from last season and season two is that like last season and season two, we, there was always, at this point, we had a clear picture of what exactly our our heroes needed to accomplish by the end yeah. of this of the like last season they had to shut down Allie. No matter what obstacles got in their way, we always needed knew they needed to shut down Allie. That we didn't always know exactly how they would do that per se or like or how they would you know there'd be like little changes, but that was always the same. Season two we always knew that the ultimate goal was they had to get their people out of Mount Weather alive. Like there's lots of roadblocks. This season, I think one one thing, like one reason why I think it's hard to know what any of this stuff with Raven is setting up, other than I'm sure it's setting up something, but it's really the reason why I think it feels like a little bit more like, or maybe not, is because we actually, we don't really have a clear end goal. Yeah, I mean, the end goal is just to survive the apocalypse. Right, it's like, don't die. But there's like 14,000 different solutions that keep being raised and then like jettisoned only to sort of come back. We don't have a clear like goal that like, okay, Raven's got to do, like by the end of episode 13, they have to do this. And like, here are the the problems that might get in the way. We don't even know what Raven might do next. So I think that's, yeah. that's kind of like a season structure yeah. issue that's kind of coming home to roost with Raven. Yeah. I do, I do think that one of the things that I really like about the, like, going back to what you said about the engineer versus mechanic thing, one piece of it that I think could become really important sort of on a metaphorical and kind of thematic level is I do really like the idea that the thing that was killing her is the computer code, the thing that brought her back to life was that analog mechanical thing. Yes, so it really yes. was like, you know, I, I think recentering herself on her fundamental ravenness and something that it was her kind of like og raven like the 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 brilliance that she had before that had nothing to do with this thing in her brain was the thing that that saved her and the thing that was destroying her was sort of other piece of it so i feel like there's i think on a on a sort of more sort of thematic kind of character level yeah yeah i, I, that's, that's, like... I think that's really lovely and satisfying that there's a kind of like that touchstone yeah, and I think sort of recentering. So I guess what I, what I what I hope comes out of this for Raven is that whatever is that is that in the next two episodes she discovers some kind of you know some some kind of component of the save the world plan either either in conjunction with what's happening in Polis or as a separate thing like is it Nightblood is it space is it whatever that that she like sort of using her fundamental Ravenness figures something else out that maybe because it's analog is something that her alley self could never have discovered. Like to remind her that she always, like I know this sounds like super cheesy, but sort of like to remind her that she always was super Raven, that she always yeah. had this capacity within her and that she didn't need the like hyped up brilliant computer coder, like that extra facet of her to make her who she was you know and so to give her a way to contribute a thing to do that is tied to the person that she was before and maybe like with with additional magical resources or like using things she finds in the lab like working those things in together but that she gets to um be the hero and save the day 
because of because of those pieces of herself that Sinclair reminded her were what made her special before and that she hasn't lost anything in terms of her specialness by purging the alley code from her brain. It wouldn't it wouldn't really be a season of the hundred if Raven didn't save their asses at least once. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so like I feel like we gotta get that in before the end. Also That's it's just, true. As we're, oh yeah. <laughs> as we're talking it occurred to me Raven in that in that like in that um a uh, pool of water curled up in a ball and bursting out of it. I was just like, oh my God, how did I miss the like womb rebirth imagery of that the first time? Like, <laughs> well, but, but here's, here's the thing though. As we saw with Octavia hitting rock bottom, that might not mean anything. <laughs> yeah. Right. Let's, the points. That is a fair point. That is a fair point. The points are made up and the scores don't matter guys. Yeah, that's true. Right. That's true. Like, like this, this could, this could be one of those moments where we really, really, really hit an aggressive visual metaphor and then we just breeze right past it (laughs) well to be fair like that is what they've mostly been doing with the aggressive visual metaphors so you know right right yeah in 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 the moment it was very lovely and i did i did really enjoy that some of the bts shots of the science islands were really fun with like the camera guy had to put on swim trunks and like get in there with her to like get the right angle which sounds Um, like a super fun afternoon for everyone yeah right just saying (laughs) (laughs) yes Um, Ian, I noticed, did not get in there. Ian was nice and dry in his long <laughs> pants, sitting sitting on the stairs, supervising. So it's like, hmm, interesting. But, uh, I mean, I definitely feel like, okay, so Raven's gonna, she's gonna do something Raven-y. What, what I, my hope, or I guess not even, not even a hope, but like my, a big place where I have a question that will determine a lot of how I feel about this season by the end of it is how the next two episodes bring Clark and Raven back together. Yeah. Um, yeah. Because it does, you know, it does really feel like so so like so here's a here's a here's a hope that I have and maybe this can if we're done with Science Island this can transition us into the Arcadia storyline but like a a a hope that I have for next episode that I'm not sure if I will get it but if I do will help I think repair a lot of this stuff is I I really want to see Clark having a profound emotional reaction when Monty and Harper come back and she hears about what happened to Jasper and I want to see Clark's feelings about Jasper motivate her choice to realize like she lost a friend that she couldn't save because she was like in leader Clark mode and not person Clark mode. These abstractions had a cost that her preoccupation with like, like that she, that she was losing track of real people and to have that, have it, have Jasper's loss in some way um, motivate her to be like, fuck it. I'm going to strap on a suit and go out in the black rain and I have to bring back Raven. You know, like yeah. there's one person left that needs her that, that she can save where she failed to save all these other people, you know, and that she failed to save and Jasper specifically. And I don't I'm sort of already braced for it to to feel like the Lincoln moment where it's totally brushed past. Except yeah. Plot mechanics like I'm already they just haven't done enough with Clark and Jasper this season, I feel like for that to be a scene they're going to prioritize, which I hate, but in terms of like 
what they've done, I'm not holding my breath, I guess. Yeah. So, let's cry some tears. Uh, okay. <laughs> so, so, okay. I, so I've been thinking about this, I mean, I've been, I, I'm sure, like, you, like, I've been unable to stop thinking about Jasper and Monty, like, since I watched the episode last night, and then when I watched it again this morning, I just, I, I think if I really drill down into it, I think the thing that I find the most kind of crushing about the way this all happened is it feels like for this to be the way Jasper went out feels on, on a real deep level, like a profound betrayal of his character. Not just that I would have liked some moment of redemption in the way that his death unfolded. Like even if he ended up deciding to take his own life, is there some spark of light in this kind of nihilist darkness? And so I felt kind of a little like devastated that there wasn't, but I also just feel like, you know, like I keep thinking about how he started off and like who he was in the first season and who he was in Matt Weather and his relationship with Maya. And, and I just felt so, I just felt so devastated that the ending they chose for him is to make him like a Jim Jones suicide cult leader. Like that, that scene of the room full of dead bodies was so dark and awful. And like, and I, I mean, just, Not just the choice that Jasper made about his own life, but the choice that we watched Jasper make and and what he made happen for all of those other characters felt like, on a very real level, turning Jasper into sort of a mass murderer, which is like a very extreme way of putting it. I think you can make the case, and I've heard people like sort of explaining it in this way, that like, he took people who wanted to die already and gave them a death that was less painful. And I hear that and I acknowledge the reality of that. But also, he was kind of the ringleader of this group of people who did decide to choose death. And so, like, the camera panning around that hangar with, like, dead bodies everywhere, you can't disentangle that from Jasper. And it's so bleak. And it's so hopeless and it so feels like contrary to the spark of like hope and light and humor and like striving and enthusiasm for the world that was such a core part of how he was introduced. Like it just, it just, I, I mean, I just can't, I can't get past it. Me too. No, that, I mean, the whole sequence was so upsetting. And I think like you, I was really, really deeply... I mean, you know, upset seems like too light a word. It was really traumatic for me to watch that. And like, I talked about this a bunch on Twitter last night and today trying to process it, but it's taken a little time to, to sort of figure out exactly how to talk about this because there's just a bunch of stuff going on. Like part of it is just like, it's super like viscerally personal to me. Yeah. You know, and, and I've, I've talked about on the podcast a bunch of times before about, you know, having struggled with depression and with, like, suicidal ideation and the ways that Jasper has, that I've connected with Jasper's character, you know, mm-hmm. through those experiences, like, re- recognize something about his experiences in myself 
I, and I don't remember if I've talked about this on the podcast before, I, but I mentioned it on Twitter. I might have. I don't remember. But anyway, so like another piece of that is that my father-in-law, my, my you know, husband's father, killed himself. Um, it'll be 10 years in July. So like not only have I myself been suicidal, but I've also like been really intimately connected to people who lost someone, you know, a family mm-hmm. member to suicide. And my brother-in-law's partner, she has lost two of her, she lost two of her siblings to suicide. And I have friends who've killed, who've had friends who've killed themselves. So on both sides of it, you know, as someone who has, who's who's had those thoughts and urges and as someone who is a survivor, you know, who's sort of like seen the aftermath, like Jasper and Monty really hit me so hard and all of that stuff. Like, I mean, I, I couldn't. You know, last night watching it, I couldn't even process it in any other way than just, like, all of the memories and emotion and trauma that watching it triggered. Like, and I use trigger, I use trigger there in, like, an advisedly clinical sense. It, like, psychologically kicked me into a different state. You know, like, I was, I was re-experiencing feelings and memories from other parts of my life as a result of watching that. And, and I... You know, and I'm I'm definitely going to cry because I just, but like, I remember watching it and thinking like, because, because it's Jasper and Monty, you know, and they're best friends. And the times when I've been suicidal, when I've, you know, when I've had those thoughts, like I've never attempted, but I've really wanted to, or I've thought about it. And the thing that always stops me is, is always like the reason I'm alive. And I mean that, you know in one or two cases, like literally, is because I knew that if I died, that it would hurt people that I love, you know, mm-hmm. and and it would hurt them in a way that they will never recover from. And, and part of that is because witnessing the aftermath of my father-in-law's death, I saw what, what him killing himself did to his children and his wife mm-hmm. and his family. And so, like, I, you know, I had an experience of seeing it. Like, I knew, I knew what yeah. the other side looked like. You know, I could, I could picture to myself, like, okay, mm-hmm. but, but if you listen to that voice that says, just, you know, that says you should, there's no point, then you know what's going to mm-hmm. happen. Yeah. And, like, last summer it was the most recent time when I was really struggling with some suicidal ideation. It wasn't as bad as it has been. Like, last summer I wasn't anywhere close to, you know, like literally doing anything, but like it was still having those thoughts. And I just remember like, I just remember talking to you about it and just thinking to myself a lot, just thinking over and over, like just thinking about what it would do to you, you know? And, and so watching, watching Monty watch his best friend commit suicide in front of his face, all I could think about was you and, you know, like, and and it's just, I can't even, I don't know. I just, I can't even... (laughs) <laughs> and that's like just yeah. so like visceral to me and I don't even know it it's it's hard because I see I can still understand Jasper's side of it but but god just to imagine Monty having to not just like not just lose his best friend but having to like having to watch it see it you know yeah. like I felt the same way like I I I went right to that same place, you know, like I was, I was watching that and I was thinking about you and, you know, and, and, and I, 
I've definitely like I've struggled with with depression a lot. I've never been in a place that approaches anywhere near where Jasper is, but like I I have this incredibly visceral sense of what it feels like to be you know to be Monty and like when I like when I was in high school my sister was suicidal and I was the only person that knew like she told me and I, I was like you know I was like 16 or something like I don't know what to yeah what do you do I, with I can't, that when you're you 16 know, years old yeah and you're all alone in it you know like yeah and, and yeah. she was like you can't like you can't tell our parents you can't tell our parents and it was not quite a year I think before I finally like, I made her go see our doctor. Like, I took her to the doctor so she could get some antidepressants. And then my mom found them and sort of confronted her. And they, like, talked about it and, like, you know, got her some counseling. Like, it ended up, like, okay. Like, whatever she was afraid was going to happen from telling her parents, you know, didn't happen. But for a period of months and months, I was the only person that knew about this. And I was trying to figure out how to, like, how to cope. And I and what I what I remember when I think back on that time was my whole life was this sort of like fight or flight panic. Yeah, yeah. I'd wake up in the middle of the night and I would go into her bedroom and I would sit by her bed and like make sure that she was still breathing. And sometimes I would just like sleep on the floor. Yeah, yeah. Just because like anytime that she wasn't directly in my line of sight, I was like, this could be it. Like it could be happening right now. But also I think, and this is where I just, I find, I find Monty just so like heartbreakingly relatable is like, because I hadn't experienced what it was like to be where she was, like I was so angry at her and I just, I just did not understand it. I was like, I can't. You know, like, my little, like, 16-year-old brain was just like, I don't understand. Like, I didn't understand why she couldn't tell mom. I didn't understand why she couldn't, why she didn't, like, she could go talk to the counselors. I didn't understand why, with, like, all these people who loved her and, like, so many great positive things in her life. Like, I just, my my brain could not get it, you know. And I was Monty's age. Like, that's, that's, I was 16, you know. And, um, And so I just, so, so watching that, so I think, like, I th- I've been thinking a lot about, you know, about like those memories and stuff, like sort of watching this Jasper and Monty story unfold and kind of getting this increasingly dark sense of where it was going. But like, but then at last night's episode, when I was watching that, like that's, I was thinking about, you know, like talking to you, like when you were depressed last summer and just, you know, and because we like live so far apart, like I just, I was so scared all the time, you know, like just thinking like Aww. what... Like, and I don't want to like, oh God, now I'm going to cry too. Like I don't, and I don't mean to make you just like feel like no, I know, to feel I bad, know. but it just like, but I, you know, I, 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 I deeply, deeply know down to like my bone marrow. Like if something happened to you, like I would not be okay again. You know, like I would not like, I, it's just not, I just wouldn't be okay. You know? And, yeah. and I, and I feel like the, the the sort of abstract fear of, of that, you know, like when you think about like, just like just that, just that fear of like something, someday something could happen and I won't be there to stop it. Just that is bad enough. But like having to watch it, like having it, like having it happen in front of Monty while Monty has the realization of what's happening at a moment where it is like just too late for him to do anything about it. It was like, I, I mean, that I, is like 
orders of magnitude worse trauma. Yeah, like I, I genuinely don't understand. I don't know if anyone involved in writing this show fully and deeply understands that that's one of like the cruelest things you can put a human being through. And I, and I feel like the fact that I think we were meant to transition from, well, he lost Jasper, but he has Harper. So it kind of all comes out in the wash makes me feel like, I don't think anybody it's like like it's like it's like the religion thing. It's like did anyone involved in telling this story have a deeply personal experience with this hugely momentous kind of thing that you're telling a story about that made you root it in the reality of what that is like for real people? Because I'm not saying like I'm not saying don't tell a story where a character commits suicide ever. But if you do it, you have to do it responsibly. Like you have to do it with an awareness of the fact that we live in the real world, you know, and and that the message that you're sending, like if the if the message of Jasper's story is that his experience with the earth that he encountered eventually became so untenable that it was like there's nothing left to live for, like Jasper just was not built to survive a world this cruel and this hostile. Like I think there's there's nothing saying that that isn't a story that you can tell or that there's no room for it in in this narrative but i feel like for for that to for me to be like okay so then tell that story i think the weight of it has to be about how does it transform monty and because monty had to kill his own mother and we have had no mention of that this season i just yeah. worry I really worry that they were incredibly irresponsible with the emotional stakes of what they put Monty through as though the fact that Harper is okay in any way minimizes or diminishes the fact that Monty just went through like one of the absolute worst things any human being can put another human being through, which is to watch the person that they love the most die. Yeah, and and combined with one of the most traumatic ways to lose someone you love, which is suicide. Yeah, yeah. You know, like, it's, it's, I, I identify, or I, I, yeah, I, I feel so much, you know, what you're saying about your sister, because I think, you know, for like a year after Jordan, my husband's dad committed suicide, I was like, absolutely terrified that he was going to do it too, you know? Oh, and yeah, I, I remember. Yeah. And he wasn't. And not because he was actually, like, he wasn't suicidal. Like, he never has been. But right. he was uh, he was struggling. Of course he was struggling because his dad had shot himself in the head. But, like, because of the, the, because of the trauma, and it's not even mm-hmm. my father, but because of the trauma of it on me, I was just, like, absolutely petrified that if I couldn't fix him, you know, if I couldn't make it okay again, then he was going to kill himself and it was going to be my fault and I was going to come home and find him, you know? And, like, that, that panic was like so real. Yeah. And oh, yeah. and just like so pervasive and it changes you, you know? Like losing someone that important to you changes you no matter how it happens. Losing someone that important to you changes you forever. And it means that you will in a fundamental way there's a piece of you that will never quite be okay again. You know, there's a piece of you that you lose that you'll never get back. Like you know with your mom, you know that. Like Yeah. You know like there's a piece of you that is always just going to be hurting because they're gone you know and that will never stop being true and you learn how to live with it but it doesn't go away 
Well, it's like it's like an illness that becomes chronic. It's like there are there are days when you have bad flare-ups. Like there are days when when it's really potent and and terrible, you know, and things happen that you can't you you feel like okay, it's like it's particularly bad today. And most of the time it becomes something that you kind of just like you yeah you learn you learn to live with it but it doesn't it doesn't ever disappear and i feel like this is one of the areas where i feel like it's really important for for fiction to be responsible in how we tell those stories is like i think the i think it's bad enough like on a, on a level that that makes me makes me genuinely angry when i think about it too hard i think it's bad enough to tell a story whose end point is Going through trauma like Jasper went through inevitably results in the choice to take your own life in a way that frames it as though that was the only thing, the only option that was possible. So like that is bad enough. But I think that doing it in a way that doesn't openly and honestly acknowledge the fact that this is the kind of thing from which Monty will never fully be able to go back to being the old Monty again. Like, I think that would be, I just think it's dangerous to like that reinforces like, like all, all the worst, darkest, most horrible, like self negating things that people experiencing suicidal ideation tell themselves about themselves, like center around this idea that like, if you were gone, would anyone really care? Like, if yeah. you disappeared, would anything be different? Would Like, maybe the people you love would be just fine. And so to me, it feels like unless this becomes a jumping off point for a story that is directly, poignantly, and forcefully about how Monty is forever changed by the loss of Jasper and how everyone who loved Jasper is changed by that, how Harper is changed by yeah. this. Like, yeah. If if it doesn't become, if that doesn't recenter itself as the heart of the story, if instead it's about, well, he lost his best friend, but Harper's okay. So like that in some way levels the scales. I feel like, like it, it actually makes me kind of angry that nobody in the writer's room stopped to think about what a, what a toxic and destructive message that is. Well, and like, that's super, that's really, really personal for me to thinking about like this is one of those you know it's been hard to figure out how to articulate because it's also tangled you know in my head yeah. so it's hard to it's hard to think about like okay what was the story being told and and mm-hmm. and thinking about it as a story because it's all mixed up in this like yeah you know really yeah. really visceral emotional stuff for me but somebody on twitter pointed out and expressing some sort of like ambivalence about it you know it was like about how she felt about telling the story but you know one of the points that she made was like well this is realistic. You know, sometimes people don't recover from things and as a result, they kill themselves. And I think like, so that is true. And I think like there are enough other, like for instance, in this, in this episode, we kind of, we get like some parallels between or contrast, I guess, between Raven and Jasper. They're both on the path to, to ending their lives, to escape a more painful continuing existence and Raven chooses not to, and Jasper chooses to go through with it. So I think, you know, I, I don't think that overall the show does not suggest that going through terrible suffering of whatever kind means that inevitably you won't recover. It just suggests that that's true for Jasper. So, okay. All right. Fine. But here's the thing. My father-in-law, when he killed himself, it was the end of a decade, a full decade, of basically... 
Well, what kicked it off, the thing that like started this this path that ended in his suicide was his father died. And that pushed him into grief that turned into depression that worsened and worsened and worsened. And he never got better. And he never figured out how to help himself or how to pull himself out of it. He couldn't recover, right? So, like, there you go. There's a real-life story. Shitty things happened to him. Somebody died, and he and he could not find a way through that grief. He couldn't find a way to incorporate that grief into his life in a way that allowed him to carry forward. And so he ended his life for that. And by the time he, he, he committed suicide... A lot of shit had happened, you know, like it was, and he, I think he didn't leave a note, but I think we have every reason to believe that, that he thought he was doing everyone a favor, you know, like he, he was, he was trying to escape. He was in a lot of not just mental pain, psychological pain, but also physical pain. Yeah. He had a lot of health problems. He had a lot of health problems that, and some of which, that which are very dire and many of which nobody knew about until he was dead. So he was in a great deal of physical pain and he was a great deal of psychological pain and the physical ailments were going to cost a lot of money. And I think he thought that if he was gone, it would be better for everybody and he would have to, he would get to stop suffering and so on and so forth. So like so there is a there is a story. Like, yes, yes, that is realistic. That that happens. My issue or my concern about Jasper, if we're thinking about Jasper as an example of sometimes in the real world people just can't pull out of the downward spiral, you know, just just can't find a way through it and and they end it for themselves. I will be really, really, really upset if, as I, I fear is the case, that is framed as the end of the story because it's not the end of the story. My father-in-law, his mistake, the thing that he believed that was wrong, that, you know, that he... That, that I wish if I could go back and tell him anything before he died is to tell him this, is that when you kill yourself, you don't end any pain. Like, you don't exist anymore. But all that pain just metastasizes and is spread around and takes over everyone else that you love. It's not the end of a story. Suicide is not the end of a story. It's not the end of the story of the person who died. It's not the end of the story of the relationships that they had. It's the beginning of another story. And that story is about everybody who's left behind and the grief that they feel and the anger. I mean, my husband was angry at his father. He couldn't even grieve for him for years. He was just so angry at him because he he was in so much pain, you know? And like, so when people, I you know, sometimes people will say like, and I understand this. You know, it's not fair to be angry at someone who committed suicide because they're in pain. I get that. But on the other hand, like, it is also a perfectly logical reaction to be angry at somebody. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. So, like, Monty's anger, like, that's totally, that's just, like, you're fucking angry, you know? Like, yeah. they're hurting you. They are hurting yeah. you. And, I, and I've, I say this having been on both sides of it, you know? So I know how hard it is to stay alive. And I know that the pain that the person who who is suicidal is feeling is absolutely real, but so is the pain of the people of their loved ones. You know, like this is, it's just like a super fucked up situation. So like, so that's the thing. Like for me, it's like, if you're going to tell, if, if what you're trying to do is tell a story about someone who could not find a way through their grief and trauma and wound up killing themselves, then that story absolutely cannot end with that suicide. It cannot 
because that's not the end of the story. And to frame that as the end of the story, I think that is the part that is troubling, that is, I think, emotionally dishonest, you know, that is that that perpetuates damaging sort of fictional stereotypes about suicide as some sort of closure. It's not closure, you know, like the person who died, you're dead. You're just dead. You're not experiencing anything anymore. Or you are, but it's on another metaphysical plane, you know, but you're gone. But it's not closure. It's a new story. It opens up something new for everyone else. It keeps going. Like, that story doesn't stop. And so if this is, if this is the end of Jasper's story, if Jasper doesn't persist through the people that he had relationships with and the way that knowing him and losing him transforms them, then I don't know what the fuck the point of the story was. Then all of that suffering, all of that grief is just gratuitous. Why did we have to watch it? It doesn't yeah. mean anything. If it doesn't if it doesn't transform these people and if we don't see how it transformed them, if we don't see them grappling with that and dealing with it, then like you're not telling that story and what all you did was put us through some emotional torture porn. Yeah. And I don't appreciate like you know, like that shit's real to me. And I felt you yeah. made me feel a lot of feelings, but I didn't need to fucking feel those feelings. I've felt them for years. If, yeah. I, if I have to feel them and they don't mean anything, then fuck you. I'm emotional. Sorry. You know, but like, seriously. No, that's like, that's totally, I feel the same way because it, it feels, it feels to me like based on, and this is like, this is where like, I am like, where I'm really frustrated too, is it feels like the way in the past this show has dealt with has dealt with loss of people who are close to these characters has been incredibly hit and miss and yeah. and some you know and some characters get like you know live on and get remembered and the show does justice to them and some of them get erased completely away and there's no way to know yet which direction this is going but i feel like you know, but, I, but the fact that I think so that's a good point. We don't actually know. I mean, we can't actually right. like just but the but fact Monty's that Monty's mom like yeah, yeah. I like the fact that they that they never went back to Monty's mom as being a thing that had ongoing impact for Monty, I feel like doesn't give me high hopes for this. And I also do feel like this is something that's fundamentally different. Yes, and also and also the fact that we didn't even get a fucking commercial break or an act break or a cutaway between Monty watching his best friend die, crying, and then getting up and being like, oh, Harper. Which, like, okay, you know, like, not that I don't understand why those dots would connect for Monty and he would rush off to save her, but, like, that yeah. rapid transition from, like, Jasper dying to, like sweet tender moment with Harper where she says I love you and it's like supposed to be I don't even know like like that's the part that makes me that that's the part that within this episode setting aside everything that happens anything that might happen in the future that's the part that felt to me a little bit like a slap in the face you know like that was the part to me like like that was not the moment to have your like tender little Marper I love you I'm sorry that was not the fucking moment I, I wanted her to ask about Jasper. Yeah. Like, I wanted, like, that whole, all the beats could have played out the same way if the thing that they're cheerfully hugging about is she sees on his face or he tells her, if she's comforting him because of what happened to Jasper and of how close she almost came to putting him through that 
also a second time, then I feel like the connection between the two of them, I feel like that makes some sense there. But it was yeah. framed as being entirely about their relationship. And, it, and as though the worst thing that she had done to him was lie and say she didn't love him. And that right. was the wrong that she had to right. fix. Instead of the real wrong being him almost having to go through what he went through with Jasper twice in a fucking row. Right, exactly. You know what my husband said to me? When he came home from work the day his dad killed himself, like I beat him home that day and, you know, and I was just like home pacing, waiting for him. And he walked in and he didn't even look at me. He walked in and he collapsed on the floor and he started screaming that motherfucker, that motherfucker, that motherfucker over and over and over again. Mm -hmm. Like we didn't have a moment of I love you. I'm so glad you're alive. No, he was just, he was, uh, yeah, it's just, I remember. Yeah, yeah. I remember. I know. Yeah, like, this is this is not what it looks like. Like, this is not, like, it just, it, yeah, it feels like already within, like, 30 seconds, they've, they've begun to erase the significance of Jasper. And this is where, like, what, what I, where it feels like it gets at something that we've, like, talked about this a little bit, I think maybe with, with Selena, I forget in what context, but, like, the sort of, like, the idea that the emotional stakes of things in this show like, that the writers only feel like things are real when they're hooked to a romantic relationship. Yeah. And and to me, it felt like this played out like somebody somewhere made a calculation that the Monty relationship we, the audience, are the most invested in is his relationship with Harper. And honest to God, I don't think that's true. Like, I love, no. like, I love Harper. I ship Harper. I'm here for it. But that, to me... Like, if, if this was about that in some way, that relationship superseding his relationship with Jasper as the one that is the most significant, then we're not watching the same show. Yeah, yeah. Or they should have started building that much longer ago, whereas, in fact, what it feels like it happened is, like, like they were, they began to pull away from each other because Jasper was in a kind of, a very realistic kind of trauma that makes you very difficult to be around because you lash out at the people that are closest to you and that's like super real. And we watched Monty's relationship with Harper like evolving, but it really felt like the show was giving us in this really upsetting way, like a a narrative visual, like a replacement of the role of Jasper in Monty's life as his most significant relationship, like physically actively replacing him with Harper as though Harper exists to fill that void for Monty, which really diminishes Harper. Well, there's just like, there's also something like really kind of, I don't know, low key (sighs) gross about like Harper being the one he could save yeah, 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 yeah. Like, there's something about it where it's like, this is this is icky for a lot of reasons. Yeah, yeah. And, like, and even throughout the season, I feel like I understand, you know, like, Jasper's rough to be around. But, like, how many really, like, how much did we see Monty trying to work that shit through with Jasper? Throughout mm-hmm. the season, it feels like Harper and Monty's relationship with Harper has superseded his relationship with Jasper to the point that... For, like, large chunks of the season, Jasper just sort of wandered around, like, saying random funny shit without apparently having much of a relationship with anybody, including Monty, you know, who would show up every once in a while to just kind of, like, yell at him. So, like, this is a culmination of them shortchanging 
Jasper and Monty's relationship throughout right. in favor of Harper, which again, I have nothing against Harper. I like Harper a lot as a character and I'm glad that Chelsea Reese has gotten a chance to like sort of get some material to sink her teeth into. And I like Marper just fine. But with this as the finale of Jasper as a character and Monty and Jasper's friendship as a relationship within the show and their story, this is just like really fucking upsetting. <laughs> Here's what makes me really angry about it is I, so it felt at the time like the right, like it was the right choice to, to pull back on the suicide at the end of last season. Yeah. Based on, I mean, based on I not having, not knowing what was going to happen this season, like Jasper killing himself versus Jasper not killing himself. I was like, I'm really glad you guys made him not kill himself. But at this point, part of me is like, I know that would have been traumatic for Monty to watch. And I do like that they had some, that they had a couple of moments this season to sort of reconnect like a little bit, but this is, this is not less shitty than that. You know, this is, is, and what it feels like to me is I honestly just feel like they ran out of Jasper story at the finale of season three, decided not to kill him so it was like all right so now we have a jasper what are we going to do with him and the only storyline they had for jasper was jasper's suicidal so so they didn't they didn't for example take any of the paths available to them to connect like jasper's grief with octavia's grief for example yeah and recenter that relationship it they didn't take any of the opportunities to to give jasper a way to choose his own death in a way that was somehow heroic that allowed him to be even even in a tiny little bit the season one jasper who blew up the bridge who like who believed in you know, like wanting to help, who cared about these people so much, you know, and who was like doing his best all the time, like to even let him sort of live again for a second. Like if, even if he had in the 11th hour, he had sacrificed his place in the rover so someone else could go, you know, something like that. Yeah, it, yeah. Like, like there were, there were so many different, like if you like, like if you had just tried a little bit to figure out, like if they knew they wanted to write off Devin, like if it was a contractual thing, you know, I don't know. You know, like otherwise I feel like then, then like, then they should have had him like, I don't know, get speared by a grounder or like, or like have him, have him go along for the Asgata whatever thing and then he gets killed like I don't know like I don't fucking know but like if they if they had no story to tell with Jasper then I feel like they should just not have they should have just written him off like they should have done something you know like this felt like they built a whole season around all we have is he's gonna kill himself and they did it in in the most harrowingly like destructive messaging possible yeah, and, and frustrating on a story level, too, because it does feel like this season's Jasper arc was just, like, a slow-motion, less good version of the arc that they gave Jasper last season, minus the chip. Right, right. Plus, plus becoming, like, a suicide cult leader for some reason. That's, and that's the part that I find... That's the part, like, okay, so so I'm also really pissed off about that, because it is it's not just, like, he just killed himself... He also right. talked like a dozen other kids into killing right. themselves. And and so we were talking about the beginning of the 
you know, like seeing all the bodies of those other kids lying around, having having taken that out too, like that was like really really fucking upsetting. And I, and I like like you, I immediately went to like it's Jonestown. Yeah, like poison Kool Aid, you know, full on Jonestown. Yeah, but and so like I am willing to buy that they absolutely did not intend for Jasper to be Jim Jones. He's just sort of the voice of a group, you know, like that that he's he's just kind of like became by default the kind of like voice or leader of a group who all equally genuinely want the same thing which is you know to party till they die but the problem is if you if you're gonna tell that story and like have it land not as like a creepy cult leader thing you need to give the other people in that group a voice like ever Uh, there's riley who's there for a second but like the problem is, like, the reason why it comes across unavoidably as if Jasper is some sort of, like, evil Svengali who talked everyone into killing themselves is because literally none of those people ever get to say anything at all. Like, Jasper says something, they're just like, yeah, yeah, okay, yeah, we're gonna do that. Yeah, and the, next thing you know, the whole dead. time, Like, yeah. we never, we never get, we don't know them, we don't know what they want, we don't have any sense, like, if you're gonna tell a story about... Which is totally plausible about, like, hey, if the end of the world is coming, sure, there definitely would be some people who'd be like, fuck it, let's just die. Like, if that's the story you're going to tell, you got to fucking tell that story. Not just be like, Jasper thought it was a good idea to kill himself and he wanted some friends there while he did it. You know, which is the way it comes across now when Jasper is literally the only one who ever talks about it. Yeah, it feels like they needed they needed an excuse to like we got to write off a bunch of red shirts and give a justification for why all these minor characters like I don't know Wick and Brian presumably <laughs> like are now like now no longer exist. But it made it made Jasper into a person like it isn't just Jasper wanting to die. Like Jasper at the beginning of season 3 was the Jasper we'd always known and loved with this darkness to him because of the trauma that he'd been through in Matt Weather. But he was still Jasper. Yeah. And, like, this guy, like, this person being like, let's all die, I'm gonna, like, brew a magical... Like, I'm watching a person die in front of me, and I'm gonna be like, hey, if I get the rest of you right, we can all die like that. Like, that's why that first scene with Riley was so creepy, because, like, Jasper apparently even lost the degree of empathy where watching another person lose their life could affect him in any other way other than, wow, I wonder how I could make that happen. Like, that's just not... Like, even when you're fucking suicidal, that's not how you feel thinking about other people dying, you know? This is what I find so sickening about what they did to Jasper. It isn't like there's no Jasper suicide arc that you could bring me on board with. Like, it isn't like there's no way to write this story that feels like, I don't want anyone to think that what we're saying is no one should ever write a story where a character kills themselves. That is absolutely not what we're saying. Yeah. My beef here is, like, if you remember back to the middle of season three, and the Jasper and Raven storyline, the thing that pulled Jasper, like this makes me so mad I'm like shaking. The thing that pulled Jasper out of his fog of grief and depression and and inability to move forward was something was going to happen to Raven. Yeah. So so even in like the darkest, most self-destructive, most nihilistic, I'm willing to swallow this blue plastic mystery chip from creepy ass Jaha before anyone even can tell me what's in it. That's how much I want to just shut down and like erase this pain. Even in that darkest moment for him, 
He never stopped wanting Raven to be okay. Yes. He never stopped thinking about, like, Raven's life, Raven deserving better, wanting Raven to be okay. And so the thing that catapulted him out of this kind of ennui that we'd really seen him kind of stagnating in since the beginning was that he was the only person capable in that moment of saving Raven's life. And that propelled him back into reconnecting with these people that he had been friends with from the very beginning who had always been there for him. And he couldn't not do something. And the thing that makes me want to throw up, I'm so fucking pissed, is like that depression and grief and PTSD and trauma leading a person to suicide is one journey but taking a person who everything we've ever seen about him has been so focused on like Jasper's been a caretaker like Jasper ascended to leadership in Mount Weather to help protect everybody else and Jasper like on the core squad in season one was always wanting to help like always trying to do what Bellamy wanted yeah like the giant turnaround episode for Bellamy with that like great hug with Jasper at the end of season one was like they were fighting because Clark and Finn and Monty were missing and Jasper was like we have to we cannot abandon our friends we have to go find them and Bellamy wouldn't do it And, like, the thing that, like, finally, like, made Jasper give Bellamy that first hug was Bellamy saying, like, no, we're going after our friends because we don't, Mm -hmm. you know, we don't abandon our friends. Like, that's Jasper. That's always been who Jasper was. And so the thing is, like, I can can follow the narrative thread of a story that leads that Jasper to a place of self-destructiveness. But what I cannot follow, because they didn't lay it out for us because I don't think they maybe even saw that's where they were going, is, like, how did the Jasper who would never leave a man behind, how did the Jasper who did everything within his power to try to save everyone else and the reason he broke down in Mount Weather was because he believed he could have saved people and Clark took away that chance. Yes. Like it wasn't yes. it wasn't just Maya. It wasn't just that he missed Maya and he was traumatized by watching her die although that was part of it. It was because at his core who Jasper was, the thing that defined him from the very beginning was that he sometimes to like an over exaggerated inaccurate degree believed himself capable and always wanted to help and to save people and we recentered him on like we found that Jasper again when he rescued Raven and then I guess like and then him taking the chip off screen and the city of light kind of shat on that I guess like that became its own sort of complication but like <laughs> the, the fact is that like I'm okay with Like, if the trajectory was always going to be about this innocent, happy, geeky, free-spirited kid being, like, broken by the traumas that he experienced on the ground and just not having the capacity to continue enduring in the world of just, like, extraordinary pain he was experiencing. You can get me there with the Jasper that he was. Like, you can write a trajectory where I believe in an organic, based in who these characters are way, I, I, you can get me there. But the piece that I just is just makes me crazy is how how that core sense of Jasper, the protector, Jasper, who 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 understood the value of other people's lives even when he himself was hurting, 
how did he become this person who has lost all capacity for anything resembling empathy and compassion? And that's the piece that they didn't ground because that didn't come from the Matt Weather trauma because he bounced out of that with Raven and then just somehow plummeted back into it in a way that we were never shown. And it just makes me like, I feel like I can never go back and watch season one again. Like, I, I feel like, I know. Or season two, like, or, or where we really watch them kind of, like, rise to being a hero. Now, like, knowing that the way they end is, like, Jasper being, like, the Jim Jones massacre. Like, this room full of dead bodies. Like, Bree and Riley and all of these other, of the kids, corpses draped over. Like, it's harrowing. Like, it's absolutely awful. And the fact that Jasper did that, the fact that Jasper became so divorced from reality and lost all sense of human connectedness to that extreme of a degree, they did not fucking set that up. Like, that was not... That comes from nowhere. And it's just awful. It's just awful. Yeah. Like, in my gut, I was like, there is a version of this I could be okay with, and I'm pretty sure I'm not going to get it. But this I did not expect. Like, Jasper leading so many other people who are innocent who are just so fucked up by their own fear and trauma and him coercing them into following them into mass suicide especially given the framework of the fact that we know that there was a version of the story where there was room for everyone at the bunker yeah if they had made the decision to stay behind and die after knowing they'd lost the bunker or after knowing that the bunker was not a complete solution, like that some huge chunk of them would have to die anyway, then then you can kind of understand like, so if we're going to survive, we have to go all the way to Polos and we have to fight another war. Then I feel like it helps fill some of those gaps a little. But the fact is when these people decided to stay behind and die, the information that they had was there is a solution where everyone can be saved. Yeah. They believed that there was a solution. And then they were just kind of like, I don't feel like taking a road trip to Polis though. So bye. Well, it kind of goes, it kind of goes back to a version of the Clark problem in this episode Mm -hmm. of like, given the information that you have, your choices no longer make sense though. They might have at one point. Right. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Like what is happening? Yeah. Like, (laughs) like did things just happen in the wrong order? It's like, you know, too much for this to make sense or you don't know enough for this to make sense. But like either way, given, given the parameters of what I know that, you know, I don't understand why this was the choice that you made. And that's why I feel like, you know, if the suicide cult timing had shuffled out differently with the timing of what was happening in Polis, like if what they had believed they were doing was we're going to go fight another war and if we can defeat Ice Nation and Tree Crew then we get this bunker then I feel like that really changes the relationship between these people and the decision to stay because their living was not certain at all you know but instead like the rub getting pulled out from under them of like JK you can't have the bunker or like oh you have the bunker JK once again you can't all have it they were totally divorced from that like they had no connection to that part of the story what they knew was Jaha's telling them to pack up because they've figured it out they've found a way to survive and so the idea of staying behind to die in the face of being told that there is a definitive way for all of you to live 
it didn't make sense to me. I didn't feel, I guess, grounded why so many people would be so easily persuaded to make that choice. Except that, again, like, unless you make Jasper Svengali, like, unless you make Jasper this manipulative evil death force that I, I don't want to believe that he is or was. That I honestly don't think that he was meant to be. But again, because... No. Because, and I guess maybe part of it is because they wound up presenting the sort of partier thing as being sort of vaguely sinister, which, like, obviously it is because they're all killing themselves. But, like, what's the point of, like, partying till the end of your days unless you were genuinely going to enjoy it? Like, surely some of the people who are going down that path wouldn't want to be just, like, you know, they wanted be, would want to be, like, embracing life. Or I, I don't know. Just, like, I just feel like we needed a richer sense of the perspective of the people who were there. Yeah. Not just Jasper. And the only perspective we got was Jasper, who we know for a fact is driven not by I love life and I just want to like live the shit out of what little I think I have, but more like I've wanted, been wanting to kill myself and I can't bring myself to do it and this is a super awesome out, but I'm just like, fuck everything. All You know, like, like Jasper's... Yeah. Jasper's attitude, the reason he comes to this is is out of this really dark nihilistic place. I don't think that's necessarily true of everyone who went with him, but since he his is the only perspective we see, we have no idea what any of those other people think or why they listen to him. You know, so it's just yeah. Yeah. And and like part of this I feel like a lot of this just comes down to I was thinking about this because I was thinking about like I was thinking about and sad about the contrast between this week's podcast and last week's. And last week, we were so happy, you know, like, we were so excited. It was such a good episode. We were so, like, loved almost all of it. And we were so hopeful. And, and this week, I was like, sorry, fam, it's not going to be so happy. But I was I was thinking about that and, like, why exactly? Like, man, like, what a difference a week makes and, and sort of thinking about that contrast. I and I realized, like, one huge thing. Last week, we had one main storyline. And then a couple of sub-stories that cooked directly into that one storyline. And so there was tons happening, but despite that, we had plenty of time to sort of have those character moments, linger with those character moments. You know, like, it didn't feel rushed despite the huge amount of stuff happening because everything that happened was connected, you know. And I think the thing that we returned to this week that has been true through most of the season, you know, and that is also a contrast with last week, is there was just too many storylines and not enough time to give any one of them what it what it needed and deserved. Yeah. As a story. That's why we had to cut away from, like, so abruptly cut off the Clark and Bellamy confrontation so we never got to see the aftermath of that. It was just like, wow, fuck, no time. Okay, yeah, that's right. over. Anyway, yeah. moving on. She didn't shoot him. Okay, done. You know, like... We couldn't linger with Monty, with Jasper. You know, we had to rush off straight to Harper. Like, so much of it just feels to me like a pacing issue. There just wasn't space to do things right. And that's just, like, super fucking frustrating, you know? I totally agree with you. I, I think the core problem was, you know, trying to, like, trying to sort of jam in so much. And I really just feel like as a goodbye to a core character who had been here from the beginning that overstuffedness did not do justice like if you if you think about how Finn went out and how Lincoln went out yeah you know like any and even Lexa who was not a series regular but was like a obviously very beloved guest star if you think about the episodes in which they died and you think about how deeply those episodes were about 
the relationships that mattered to them and about the impact of their of their deaths and that they were the A story. Yep. You know, like Spacewalker was all about Finn and Raven and Finn yep. and Clark. Yep. And, you know, and the episode where, you know, where Lexa died was like so much, I mean, and obviously like this is its own set of problems with the sex death, like the, there were, there are many issues with that, but, but that it was deeply about like. But it was really devoted with Clark, to. And it was yeah. really deeply devoted to Lexa and, you know, and the, and the rebellion episode where Lincoln got shot as upset as I was that that was the direction they took that story. They gave Lincoln like having his own agency, choosing the manner of his own death, the moment of like goodbye with Octavia and with Kane, dying to free everybody else. And the whole story was revolved around that. The whole story was that. Yeah. Like I splitting up the Arcadia and the Polis of those two episodes last season gave us a whole episode with no cutaways about Lex's story and a whole episode with no cutaways about Lincoln's story instead of juggling them back to back when they made the sort of unusual choice to really split what was happening in those two worlds so you have one episode with no Bellamy and one with no Clark because they were in those two separate spaces. I think what that did was it meant that Lincoln and Lexa didn't have to get crammed in together into the same overstepped episode and it really let those stakes breed. Yeah. And I and I just really feel like my biggest takeaway from this episode is given how unbelievably central to the story Jasper has been since the pilot as one of the original core delinquents and how many deep relationships he has. I'm just so infuriated that that he went out in a way that felt so unworthy of him, so distant from who he was and what he stood for, with so little time and care given to it, without any real rec- meaningful reconciliation between him and Monty over yeah. the course of the season. Monty didn't even fuck it. Like he died before Monty said, "I love you." You know, like yeah, yeah. I know that. I know that's supposed to be like tragic. I'm sure, but you know what? Fuck that. <laughs> it's that's horrible. That's a horrible message to send. Like it's a. It's just. It feels like this just plunge headfirst into pure nothing matters nihilism in a way that feels like, like the show's always been dark. Like that's, that's like why we love the show, right? It was like three episodes into the first season. It takes this insane sharp right turn into crazy town when Wells dies and you're like, oh my God, this show will do anything. But the difference there is that like in the first season, the dark, heavy like death has these real stakes kind of stuff was counterbalanced against a show that that was about people who genuinely wanted to survive wanted each other to survive who were connected to each other you know like Abby never stops trying to find a way to get to her daughter. Clark and Bellamy never give up on protecting the delinquents. And Wells' death was, like, hugely important, and they developed, you yeah. know, they developed yeah, a yeah. lot of... It had, like, ongoing stakes for all these yeah. characters. It had it was transformational for Clark, you know, yeah. like, in ways that resonated throughout that season. Finn's death was transformational for Raven and for Clark in ways that resonated mm-hmm. throughout the rest of that season and into the next. Yeah. Lexa's death was transformational for Clark in ways that yeah. resonated. Blah, blah, yeah. blah. Lincoln. Same with Lincoln. Yeah, exactly. You know, like, yeah, yeah like, I, and I, I hope Jasper's is too, but, like, based on the way that things went in this episode, I'm just kind of like, it wasn't in this episode. Well, and I think the thing that I find really, the thing that's make, that's really sad about it to me is that to an extent and i and i would say 
I would say Lexa in, in a way is the exception, but to an extent, all of the rest of them died in a way that felt emblematic of how they lived. So for Finn, like Finn fucked up major, like Finn did something terrible and his death ended up as him accepting the consequences for the cost of the thing that he had done and Clark having to be the person, Clark sparing his life to save him from like the grounder torture. Yeah. It felt like this is rooted in the reality of who Finn is and who he is to Clark, you know? And so what Clark did and how Raven reacted to it and Finn's choice to stop hiding, like Finn's choice to turn himself over because it's the one hope for grounder peace that felt like this is, it felt like at the core of who Finn was. And I think that for Lincoln, sacrificing himself in order to not only to let everyone else, to buy time for everyone else to get free, especially for Octavia, but also to exact a promise from Pike that Pike ended up keeping that all of those grounder people, like that Lincoln's people would be safe. Like Lincoln, Lincoln died the way that he lived, you know? And I think for Lexa, I think the the fact that it was the whole shitty accidental stray bullet trope was like ridiculous, but that she died taking a bullet for Clark, I think also does mean something like it's not the way it should have happened, but still like it was. Well, yeah. And also, I mean, like on a, on a like broader level, like the reason why Titus was trying to shoot Clark is because he believed Clark was the reason that. Lexa was embracing all of these huge change, you know, transformations to grounder culture, you know, right, so right, Lexa, yeah. Lexa died in, indirectly. Like this is the frustrating thing about Lexa's death to me is that I expected her to die directly because she was trying to change things and people didn't want her to like, that would have yeah. been like, have, know, like have Antari come in and assassinate her. Like, or not that's... even Antari, not even Antari, like Antari, like, like Antari, that would have been, you know, for political gain, but just like somebody even just having Titus, like, or somebody, you know, one of those many people that she made very angry by declaring blood must not have blood. Like, they had plenty of reasons to assassinate her, for her to die for the thing that she believed in, you know? Right, And right. so, like, on a broad level, she did. Because she took the bullet accidentally that was meant for Clark because Clark to Titus represented the things that Lexa... See, this is the problem with, with her death is that it's all very convoluted when you try to talk it out. But on this yeah, like, yeah, sort, of, yeah. <laughs> on sort of like big picture, I think it's supposed to be like she died because she was, you know, trying to change things for the better and like the man didn't want her to, whatever. But like, so so in like a very kind of overly abstract and indirect way, she did. Right, you know, right. <laughs> Yeah, so like, so for, yeah, so I did, yeah, it was, it was, it is and remains full of problems, but it does feel like it fits better into that pattern of, the deaths of major characters on this show, like when they when they say goodbye to a character who is deeply loved, that there is an effort made to do justice to who that person was in a reminder that deaths have stakes. You know, like even like even characters like Jake and Wells, who we only knew for a couple of episodes, their deaths had weight and meaning. And they died the way that they lived. You know, like, Wells died being kind to somebody. And Jake died trying to, like, do the right thing for his people. Yep. And I think what I find really depressing about Jasper is that first they, like, destroyed everything that made Jasper the beautiful, wonderful character that we all loved. And then they killed him in the cruelest way to Monty possible. And none of it felt rooted in original flavor Jasper. Like, none of it felt like this is truly and genuinely who Jasper ever was. And yeah. and that that makes me angry than any other part of it was that they gave yeah. him no chance to be Jasper again. Yeah, no, I agree. And I and I will say to be fair, 
you know, Jasper does say to Monty, basically, like, he wasn't supposed to happen like this. I think the implication is that Monty was not supposed to find him until after he was dead. Which is still, like, Monty should never... You should never have to find the body of your best friend after they committed suicide. That's just a thing that no one should ever have to experience, ever under any circumstances. And I think that they were... I think it was meant to be, like, honoring Jasper and Monty in that they got this intense scene at the end. And once again, Devin Bostic and Chris Larkin fucking killed it. Like... Oh, my God. They were... like amazing you know like just watching their faces and it just i just like it just never ever 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 was going to land because of all this other shit that got piled in there for like i don't Mm -hmm. even know what reason you know so it's just like i see what you were trying to do and it was never going to work (laughs) yeah and i'm really really annoyed about it (laughs) yeah you know basically like it's not that I don't get what the intention was. It's just that I'm super pissed about how, like, badly you whiffed it, basically. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, in, and in such a high-stakes situation, too. With, yeah, like, one exactly, core, exactly. With one of our, like, core central characters. And, and in a way where, you know, I, I understand that, like, there are complex conversations to be had and many sides to the issue of how aware are artists obligated to be of the audience consuming their art while they are making it. Like I totally get that there may be like in the writer's room, multiple opinions about how aware of the fandom or how aware of the audience do we want to or need to be as we're writing this show? Yeah. Yeah. No, I agree. And I also, I also think it's worth saying like, I don't, I am uncomfortable with the idea that we should ever say that someone shouldn't, write something or depict exactly exactly tell a story like this is i'm not you know i'm i i really am i'm you know i want to make clear like i i don't i don't want to like make it seem like i'm saying you should have never done this no one should ever do this this should be stopped whatever because i think that's really dangerous and and like i i don't think that art people make bad people try to tell stories or do things and they don't work out all the time and you know most right. of the time and most of the time i think also you know like you can you can have a story in your mind and you can tell it and it doesn't turn out the way it doesn't come across the way that you wanted it to or doesn't work out the way you wanted it to like 99 times out of 100 that is not a sign of any kind of malice you know and it's not yeah. even a, oh, ki- yeah. a sign of any kind of like insensitivity Sometimes it's just a matter of making things is hard and it doesn't come out the way you wanted it to, you know? So, so this is not, I'm not, I don't want to make it seem like I'm impugning, I'm saying they shouldn't have done, they should never, ever, ever have even thought about doing this story or or nobody should do the story or even trying to say like, you know, like impugning anyone's abilities or talent. Like, shit happens, you know? And I don't know what... We don't know what was going on in that writer's room. And we don't know what was going on in production and whatever. But, like, all we get... All we get and all we know is the final product. And all we can do is just sort of talk about how it worked and how it didn't work and our reactions. And so, like, that's that's all I'm really trying to do. And my... You know, and my opinions and my reactions are not very positive on this one. But... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> you know, and like, and I think this is something that we always try to do. I think that we're very careful to do is to explain when something, when something doesn't work for us, especially something like this, where like you said, like the stakes are really high and it's really important. And it's something very important to us personally, important and, and personal to us is try to articulate as best as we can and as clearly as we can, 
here is why I think what I do and I feel what I do. You know, just to sort of explain whether you agree or not. Well, however this came about, however you feel about it, just to like explain and explain to to our to myself too and ourselves. Like I think, you know, I'm I'm speaking for myself, but I I think you probably feel the same. Like a lot of the time doing this podcast, you know, in fandom in general, but this podcast I think especially is like an exercise for me in just like understanding myself in the way that I'm processing the show and fiction better, you know? Yeah. Like, so, like, I have a better understanding of the reactions I have and the judgments I make and why I make them and what my values are and what things I prioritize and how I'm sort of reading things, like, to myself as much as anyone else, so. Yeah, and I, I think a lot of times I don't necessarily know how I feel about something until we talk it out. And yeah, me too, like, me too. Now I feel like, okay, like, why was I mad? What was the thing that I didn't understand? Or, or, exactly. or what did I love about this that I can't quite articulate? And I think that, yeah, this helps me sort of process all of that. Right, exactly. We're both very verbal processors. Yes. <laughs> which is why we can talk for four and a half hours about I was going to say, which is why our podcasts <laughs> get longer and longer and longer and longer and longer. Oh, my God. Um, okay. We so got a lot of outtakes. Hmm. We have a lot of outtakes and a lot of editing. Oh, oh, okay. So we're wrapping up. So, so we, I want to say on the podcast, I want to shout out to our wonderful edit crew. Yes. Um, Claire and I have a few busy weekends in a row. Claire was on vacation last weekend. This weekend is I'm in the final paper grading crunch. Next weekend I have family in town. So we had a few weekends in a row where we're going to have like limited time to edit. And so we put out a call on Twitter just asking anyone, you know, who is listeners or followers, would anybody be willing to help us? And we had six lovely people volunteer and five people last weekend were able to help us and they basically like they saved our butts like the reason we were able to get the podcast up when we did last week is because they took several hours of their weekends and they learned how to edit and they they took a chunk of the work from us and we are so incredibly grateful yeah to all of them for all of their awesome help and they're i think they're going to help us again this weekend so all of everybody thank our wonderful edit crew. And so thank you especially specifically to Emily, Cecile, Jess, Melina, Brittany. You guys rock and you're super you awesome. You are amazing, wonderful human beings and we love you from the bottom of our hearts. Yes, we love you so much. And if anybody who's listening is like, hey, I want to learn to edit podcasts and help out, then give us a shout on Twitter and we can give you some work. Yes. <laughs> There's it, plenty we, of we it. Spend- we spend about, I mean, it probably takes about 20 hours per weekend. Yeah, between the two get, of us. Yeah, to, to get the podcast up. And, and we really do try to have them up by Sundays so that people can listen to them over the weekend. And so just, yeah, just having, even just having like a couple extra pairs of hands, I was like, this is amazing. And everyone did such a great job. And if you go back and listen to last week's podcast with Selena, you totally can't tell that each half hour chunk was edited by a different person because everyone was just fantastic. So yeah. So edit crew, we love you from the bottom of our hearts. We love you so very much. You are awesome. Thank you so much for sacrificing some of your free time to help us out. Like I can't even express how much we appreciate that and I'm just like overwhelmed with amazement and gratitude that that you guys were even like willing to do that so like yeah you're just you're just the awesomest thank you so much the awesomest yes okay all right uh <gasps> all right so next week we will you will hear us talk at you 
<laughs> about the episode called The Chosen, which is number 412, except for not really. It's it's like, whatever. I'm tired. Bye. Okay. <laughs> it's bedtime for Aaron. Yes, that's the name of the story. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Thank you and good night. <laughs> good night. Okay.